I'd like to call to order the City Council meeting of November the 15th, 2022. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely, <coughs> through Zoom or by telephone. Our study session tonight is a big one. It is on three topics. The first is the preliminary 2023-2024 budget and preliminary 2023-2028 capital improvement program. The second is on a draft permanent supportive housing program agreement with King County. And the third <coughs> is for a Northeast 85th Street station area plan phase two briefing. We expect to reconvene our regular meeting at approximately 730. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So as you said, we have three uh, complex topics tonight. We're gonna try to do them in about 40 minutes each. Uh, some of them may go faster, some might go a little slower, but I'll be keeping an eye on the clock. Um, our first presentation uh, point of order, Madam Mayor. is going to be do done by Kevin Pilstring, our financial planning supervisor. Session. Oh, and I see we're also our finance <laughs> manager, George Dugdale, is here as well. So. Hold on just one second, city manager. I think we need to do the roll call. Ah, thank you. Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Black? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Falcone? Here. Councilmember Pascal, Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Here. Mayor Sweet? Here. Thank you. Sorry, City Manager. No back problem. To, back to George and... Listen to our... Uh, so I wanted to explain a little bit how this is going to go. So the study session is going to be talking about potential amendments to the budget process, which will then bring up under the business section of the budget. So we're not looking for action at the study session, but we will be looking for action um, later on tonight. Uh, so with that, I will go ahead and turn it over to George first and then Kevin. Okay, thank you, City Manager. Good evening, Council. Hopefully everybody can see my screen already. Um, so we have 18 slides for you today, um, about half and half on the 23-24 budget and 23-28 CIP. Um, as this is primarily follow-up from the previous study sessions on public hearings on these items. So... Um, as I said, we're split in two. We have follow-up items on the budget first, which will be presented by me. And the second half is going to be Kevin Pelstring running through changes to the CIP program since you last saw that at the October 4th study session. Okay, so the 23-24 budget. As the city manager said, we have actually both a public hearing and a business item on the same topic tonight. So the staff presentation for the study session will focus on the potential amendments as proposed by the city manager. The public hearing obviously will be for public feedback and for public comment and then the business item will be for council to uh, vote or to indicate preference on the amendments these will all be then brought back on december 13th for budget adoption so before i jump into the <coughs> amendments themselves um, a couple of follow-up items from the november 1st study session so we had a council question on november 1st on um on how the sales tax decline during the last recession impacted our reserve balances. And so both the memo and our November 1st uh, presentation showed the decline that we saw in 2007 2000, or 2008, 2009. Um, you can see there 9% decline in 2009 and 18.5% in 2010. Um, and then you can see our reserve balances and how far below target they fell. Um, we went from about 7.4, just under 7.5 million at the end of 2008, down to 4.75 in 2009, 2010. And they began to build them up um, again slowly from the 2011 onwards. 
So about half of the revenue loss, which totaled around 6.3 million in sales tax across the, the years that were impacted, about half of that was made up with reserve use, um, including use of all of the revenue stabilization reserve. So to look forward to um, the present day, the general purpose reserve balance is projected to be 18.8 million at the end of 2024, including close to, as we mentioned, $3 million in um, reserve contributions made in this um, biennium. This is equivalent to roughly 60% of annual sales tax revenue, um, which is something in the region of where it was uh, prior to the last recession as well. Um, as an aside, since we wrote the memo, um, the Seattle Economic Forecast Office has put out their forecast for sales tax for the next couple of years, and they're projecting 1% growth in 2023 and then just over 2% growth in 2024. Um, so if Kirkland saw the growth that Seattle is projecting, that would be just about a million dollars more than we budgeted in 23-24. So I'm going to move to the council budget amendments unless there are any council questions on the reserves or the sales tax. Looks like you covered it. Great. So this list here is the potential amendments which have been discussed at previous council study sessions, both the October 25th study session, the November 1st public hearing and the November 1st study session. Um, and so this includes items which we believe have a non-general fund funding source, as well as items which are still under council discussion. So the city manager um, will breaks these potential amendments um, and then so some other uh, ones as well, which I'll highlight into four potential actions for council in this evening's meeting. The first list, which we're calling amendment one, includes two tables. That top table that totals 1.2 million. So the city manager's proposal will be to fund all of these now, um, except for the first line there, the fire station 27 um, refurbishment. These items can all be funded with non-general fund resources or they don't have an immediate cost. Um, for example, the software identifying the short-term rentals, the RFP would not have a cost and we could bring back the known cost to council after that. But some of the other actions, the sustainability master plan actions at 300,000 could have be funded with ARPA. And you can see the list of funding sources for the other items there. The second table on this slide shows um, the items which we believe had, had had a lot of council discussion, had broad council support. So these include the human services requests, funding for diverse arts and events, Eastside Rail Share, um, consultant funding for development ideas in Houghton Village, snow removal program, and then the Together Centre Capital Funds, which was an item um, brought forward at the public hearing on November 1st. So you can see in the, um, the, the, the bottom two rows of that table there, the 586,000 is the funding available to council. That's made up of the unprogrammed revenue that staff had, had not programmed in the budget, plus unfunding the Calacala service package for 38,500. So that would give council $586,000 above um, the 1% in general fund, um, which, we, which is also uh, currently unprogrammed. Um, and this would use um, all but 44,000 of that 586. George, before you move on, I just wanted to say uh, one thing to the council about the REIT uh, for Fire Station 27. So there is more than 785,000 unallocated REIT available. So this money is available. Um, part of the reason that I'm still suggesting that we don't set this amount yet is that the 785 is either too low or too high. We, we don't quite have 
a proposal for exactly what we do with it or how much we need to do it. So this is my intent would be to bring this back in the mid-buy discussions in June with a better idea of what exactly we would do with Fire Station 27 and then what we'd actually need to do to do the remodel. So it's not that we're never going to fund this. It's just that we think we need to learn a little bit more before we make an actual concrete proposal. But I'm happy to answer any questions about that. Okay, thank you. Okay. So the second um, list of amendments, which is calling Amendment 2, um, includes three items which um, are still under council discussion as we understood the conversation on November 1st. So two of these, the special event support and the parks planning support, were originally departmental service packages that included FTE resources and some other funding as well. The city manager's proposal is that these be um, be, be replaced with a dollar figure amount. So contract or temporary resources to support special events, um, and then it's equivalent amount 300,000 for parks planning support. The other item here is the continuation of team programs and mobile recreation, which is close to 400,000. So those three items um, come to almost exactly a million dollars between them. So if you use the remaining unprogrammed funding of 44,000, you would be using close to um, close to a million dollars of the 1% general fund set aside, which we had left out of the original budget. As a reminder, the total 1% general fund set aside was around 2.4 million. Amendment three also was from the um, public hearing on November 1st, the Kirkland Downtown Association kiosks. Um, that would be just over $65,000. This is its own amendment because there was not a lot of discussion about this on November 1st. And so and we wanted to leave the opportunity for council to discuss this item. And then the fourth amendment is a new one. And this is the jail medical costs. So this is a biennial increase in our medical costs in the jail. So it's about $200,000 increase in 2023, about $227,000 in 2024. So this is the total increase in our jail medical costs for the equivalent level of service that we currently um, receive. I'm not sure if there are council questions on those items. George, I know we were trying to get a little bit more information on the jail medical costs. I don't know if the police department is available to answer that or if you've had a chance to talk with them yet. I believe that, that, um, that there is somebody from the police department here who can answer that question. I see Deputy Chief St. Jean, welcome. Yes, thank you. So this is um, mostly around the staffing crisis in the kind of the general medical field. Uh, our current provider, uh, let us know that he couldn't maintain the required staffing coverage um, based on staffing. And so we needed to go out for an RFP on that. Um, one of the big drivers is not only the staffing, but also the insurance cost for providers that continues to increase um, just in the overall field. Uh, we did reach out to five providers um, as part of the RFP, including Vera, the Vera Clinic, but only one ended up bidding for the service and in order to have the required staffing and with the increased insurance cost, this is what the uh, bid came in at. Uh, obviously, the correction setting is a unique environment, uh, so not everyone is interested in that. And um, I, I'm happy to answer any further questions on that, but that's kind of what's driving that in our opinion and kind of the process we went through to get to this. I'm, I'm going to go to Councilmember Pascal first. Oh. 
Thank you, Madam Mayor. So I, I assume this is the time to ask questions about these. Um, yes. So yes. just to kind of stay on the jail cost subject, I'm curious a little bit more about what our costs are today. Is this like a 50% increase or a doubling or what, what percentage increase is this? I'm just trying to kind of understand, get a perspective here, context. Do you have that information, George? I, I actually um, just quickly um, pulling it up here. Um, so our original contract in 2020 was 306,000. It's risen. Um, it's risen a little bit in the last couple of years because it was it was under contract. Um, we have 361,354. And that includes some additional hours from 2008. So we currently pay $361,354. So this would be adding probably 40% increase to the contract. Okay. So what you were talking about was a yearly cost, and this is for two years. Um, yeah. So this is, yeah. So the 361000 is for a year. And then in 2023, this amendment would add about 208000 to that number. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty big cost. It would, uh, for me, it'd just it'd be nice to dig into this a little bit more in terms of um, how are other agencies that, that operate jails, are they seeing similar costs? So just a little bit more information. It's obviously we have to do this. It's just more about what are things that we can be doing to lessen um, perhaps the cost for these providers. I know that it's a complex issue, but it's worth looking at a little bit more. Um, you know, in the course of uh, this next year. Um, that's at least my thoughts on that. The the other question I had was around the teen programs and mobile recreation. The questions I had were maybe the city manager or the parks director could talk about, I understand there's an RFP process out right now for KTUB. How does that factor into this? Is that is that kind of on a separate track from this? Um, if depending upon the results of that program, how does this uh, add to that or compete against it? I'm just trying to understand kind of the, the spectrum of our team programs. And then and then this is, we are also providing in the base budget, we, we also provide money towards kind of a team program. This is an additive, right? It's not like we're it's getting correct. rid of team programs. So I'm just wondering if you can provide a little bit more context. Yeah, let me give a little context about the service package decision that I made then. I think uh, our parks director's on. She can answer more questions about the programs themselves um, and how they might fit together. So part of the reason that I didn't um, initially propose this service package to go forward was that we were in the conversation about what would be the future of KTUB. Uh, so we have an RFP process. These two things weren't exactly linked, but it sort of made sense to look at our teen programming you know, in total. Uh, as you know, we did issue an RFP. We're going to be bringing the results of that to the council in January, along with a proposal by the city to what the city might also propose to offer as team programming KTUB, so the council can evaluate both a contracted option and an in-house option. And so I had originally thought we should wait on all that before we made this um, recommendation. The programs themselves here, though, are not dependent on KTUB, and they're different. And so I think the idea of considering it as a, as a service package is certainly makes sense. Um, but this is also one-time money. So that was the other reason that I hadn't proposed it before. Uh, but I think Lynn can also then speak to the actual programs that you get. But I do think there's some logic to sort of possibly approving this, but then holding off on executing the money till we make a decision on KTUB. Um, 
But so that's kind of an overview from the city manager perspective. And uh, Lynn, if you wanted to add some things about the programs themselves and how they've gone. Yes, uh, sure would. Thank you. And that was an excellent summary, city manager. Thank you for that. Um, this year we had the pilot teen programs and uh, they served 390 teens, just a couple specific um, data points with that. Um, the hiking outdoor rec programs had the highest participation, uh, which was 200 teens. And there were also 70 on the wait list that didn't get to participate. And then we had the teen nights and there were 140 teens that came to the teen nights. Um, we served 300 youth through the piloted mobile recreation program. Uh, now that program isn't specific to teens, it's, it's any youth who want to come to the park. So um, the van goes to different parks each time and essentially does free activities and whatnot uh, for any, of, any youth who want to come. Um, and then we also had five high school students um, participating in an internship program. Um, so those programs were quite successful. And um, like the city manager mentioned, these programs are actually not dependent on a facility. Um, and so we did propose to, to bring those back. Um, without funding, we essentially just returned to the previous service level uh, because this was a pilot program with one-time funding. Um, now, having said that, does it uh, overlap with KTUB? Potentially, yes, potentially, yes, um, but they could stand alone as well. So we're looking at 80 classes that would be offered for teens and preteens uh, each year, which would again be outdoor recreation activities like hiking and kayaking, um, special interest field trips to um, museums, farm tours, those types of things. The free monthly teen nights, um, free employment preparedness and financial literacy workshops, um, cooking classes, art workshops. Um, the outdoor recreation activities um, would be offered at no cost to participants uh, with strategic outreach to historically underserved populations. And we've gotten a little assistance from that in the past um, from the Kirkland Park and Community Foundation as well. Um, the summer mobile recreation program and the high school internships. So that's, that's what would be included in the team package. Um, and if the uh, if city council were to choose a city operated model of KTUB, we would likely roll all of these programs into that and KTUB could really serve as a hub for all teen and youth program, not all youth, all teen programming and some youth programming. Um, so yes, I think there's a, a lot of merit in considering um, the KTUB proposal kind of in, in tandem with this. And unfortunately, the two processes didn't quite line up for that, though. But close. Well, I thank you for that added context. That's exactly what I was trying to understand in my head. So. And I did want to confirm that you're correct that the 160000 per year that was for KTUB team programming is in the base budget is separate from this. So that's in addition to this current allocation. Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, um, first, I just want to add my support to the teen programming. I do agree that um, we need to look at our whole teen programming holistically, including the youth um, council, KTUB. But I think that in the short term, this programming is really important because we're reaching young people that we're currently not reaching now. 
And I really like the opportunity to go out into the community because not every um, young person has access to, well, they do have free bus passes now, but um, don't have access to get to KTUB. And KTUB is not um, active as we're right now. Um, the reason I asked to speak is I wanted to go back to jail, or jail medical, medical costs. Deputy Chief, I just think it would be helpful for the public if we talk about what what that program is and what those medical costs entail. I'm assuming that a lot of people do not know. Thank you. Would you like that now or in a follow-up? <laughs> Sorry. Now, please. You bet. Um, so that is providing medical treatment and um, clearance for anybody that would come into the jail or would be housed there, allowing us to have up to a one-year program um, where people are housed if they are sentenced to that long. If we didn't have a medical program, we would not be able to do that, and we would be forced to house uh, all of Kirkland's uh, inmates at a regional jail at a higher cost. So. You know, that's one of the benefits of having our own jail is that we can try to control some of these costs, even though the medical price is going up, but um, we're able to do that. And then we're also able to offer, you know, some of the restorative programs that are important to us for drug and alcohol addictions and some of those kind of things. So, um, but it's everything from, um, you know, prescription medicine that they need to, uh, working on withdrawal symptoms to um, just overall general health, um, especially during you know the last two years with COVID and working through all of that. So it's it's a, it's the whole medical piece, and again, it's a you know it's a unique environment as lots of different people come in and out of there, and um, making sure we provide the best service possible for those that um, are going to be housed there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just a follow up from me. Is there um, is there a comparison available to us for folks who we don't keep here, who we send to SCORE or somewhere else in terms of uh, average cost? Yes, we have all that information. I don't have that right now, and I don't know if George does or not, but um, definitely more expensive. And there are some uh, inmates based on behavioral health issues and some of those kind of things that we're not equipped with and we do have to still utilize those regional resources, but try to keep as many as possible uh, in-house for that. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I'd like to make some observations, particularly on the KDA kiosk proposal. <clears throat> um, as as my colleagues all know, um, but for the benefit of the audience, I chair the Tourism Development Committee. And KDA brought a proposal to the TDC a few months back um, to fund this from tourism dollars, uh, lodging tax dollars and specific, specifically. And uh, you know, the, the purpose of lodging tax revenue is to drive heads and beds to get more hotel stays in Kirkland since it's the hotels that are paying the tax. <clears throat> and um, one of the key things we asked for at the time was uh, some data, some evidence that having these kiosks would actually increase hotel stays. And 
um, what data was available was not convincing. And so we decided not to use lodging tax dollars to fund it. Um, I was not aware that this proposal was going to come forth. And I'm imagining that now the focus is more on economic development, kind of like Shop Local Kirkland uh, is to help the business community. Um, but I would still want to see the data, right? Is there data that shows that having these kiosks available actually increase business for restaurants or stores, et cetera? And, uh, you know, with the ubiquity of smartphones now, my experience is most people would just pull out their phone and do a search for a restaurant rather than try to find a kiosk and stand outdoors to use it. So I, I personally would like to see more data rather than fund this now. Uh, maybe we could ask that the economic development folks in the city manager's office collect more information about it and come back to us and we can look at it again uh, in the future. Not necessarily the next budget cycle, but even just enough time to get some more information. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, I agree with um, Councilmember Nixon that I'd like to see more data before making any decisions on um, proposed budget amendment three. So thank you for speaking to that. Councilmember Nixon, um, I want to just provide some comment on proposed budget amendment number two. Um, in particular, just um, throwing my support uh, in addition to some of my fellow council members for the continuation of the teen programs and mobile recreations. This is something that, you know, is absolutely an equity issue. I'm so, was so pleased to see this program up and running and to see all the programming. I mean, it sounds like we, you know, had wait lists for some of the, the hiking and the field trips that were out there. We know that um, our local public schools are having a harder and harder time being able to have field trips and to be able to get folks in the, out in the community and students who otherwise don't have resources or their families don't have resources to be able to visit these things and have these experiences. Um, it's just wonderful that the city is able to provide that and to provide that free um, for folks in the community. So uh, of even the three items under proposed budget amendment two, if I had to prioritize, this would be at the top of the list for me um, of the three items. Also, my family got to get out and enjoy the rec and roll, some of that youth programming this summer. And I love that it was, you know, out in the community, as Councilmember Curtis said, it was at different locations rotating throughout the city, which was really fantastic. The van just looks really fun. I mean, the kids just love seeing the van, love seeing. I think it was brilliant to have, you know, the high school interns there as well. It was a great experience for them, but they also really connected with the children, just seeing them have that leadership opportunity with the children um, and just fun. Like it's fun to for little kids to hang out with teenagers who have so much energy and, you know, uh, and so that was really fantastic. And I loved that lunch was provided too. So there was also food to feed folks and it was free. Um, so again, I just want to throw my support behind that and thank um, so much the Parks Department for continuing to prioritize that. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I too was going to uh, thank Councilmember Nixon for the additional context, super helpful uh, around Amendment 3. Um, agree with everything that's been said um, by my colleagues with respect to those specific items on Amendment 2. I want to go back to the jail medical costs on, medical, on Amendment 4. I was kind of waiting for one of my colleagues to ask this question, and so now it feels like it may be a dumb question. Um, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and I may have missed it. Um, so uh, I think um, George had said that this was a 40% increase over the last year, the last biennium. Over current costs, yeah. Our current contract runs through the end of this year. So it's like a 40% increase over the current okay. contract level. So is 60% of this already in the base budget? 
Yes. Okay. So this amendment four is really more of a seventy, eighty thousand dollar amendment. Yes. No, this is no. the forty percent. Yeah. So there is. Gotcha. Seven hundred thousand okay, in the so base, that, and we need. Yeah. Okay. So thank there's you. approximately so, three fifty each year in the budget, and this would add two hundred eight thousand each year to that. So it's going to go from three hundred and fifty to five hundred and something. And is this general fund dollars? Yes. Okay. And here's the dumb question: Where are we finding this money? So currently, we're proposing it out of the unprogrammed funding, so it would come out of the same category that you're looking at of the general funds set aside. Uh, we think over time, as we look at the next two-year budget, you know, we'll be looking at the way to absorb this differently. But right now, as it, since it's the end of the budget cycle, we don't really have an easy way to find ongoing revenue for that. Okay. So out of the nine hundred fifty-five, fifty-six thousand, that's where this would—that's where this money would come out of. This would. Okay. Add to it. Actually, be in addition to that. It'd be in addition to. Yeah. So if if you approved oh. Amendment Two. Okay. So then. Okay. So I apologize. So George, can you remind me then what the total, uh, the one yeah, the total one percent general fund set aside is two point something. Two point four, just over two point four. Yeah. Okay. So. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. This is the time when one of my colleagues tells me that that was not a stupid question, and they had the same question. <laughs> It's a, a good question. Okay, any further discussion? Go ahead. Thank you. George, I don't know if we're going to get to this question, but we got an email today from the Promotories Network about the future funding of the health fair, and I wasn't clear if that was a new request. Yeah, so, and I think uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold had a question as well, Madam Mayor, but... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. So that question has come in after we put all this together. We were going to bring that up during the public hearing section to make sure that all of you had seen it. Um, so we're sort of treating it as a new public, we have a public hearing tonight, so treating it as that. Uh, we're prepared to speak to how we think that would compete against the other human services package. We can do that now or we can do that under the business item. But that 40,000, and I'll, I'll speak for um, Lynn and for Jen Boone, we would prioritize that over the last 40,000 on the current list of the human services list. So we can happy to talk about that more now or we can talk about that more in the business section. Uh, Deputy Mayor uh, Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, as we get into the discussion during the business meeting of how we prioritize things, one thing that we haven't talked about is the parks planning support position. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering if um, parks or the city manager could talk about um, if we didn't fund this in the budget, what are the future opportunities to do this, or what's the impact if we don't fund that particular position? positions yeah so well, I'll give my answer and again Lynn please feel free to <laughs> elaborate so so the the way I saw this in the service package request was I would say this is sort of like a level of effort that's necessary for the existing CIP so we have a set of projects councils already said and it would help us accelerate some of those projects um, just because of all the work you probably saw in the service package itself. The reason I didn't propose it was because as proposed, it was an ongoing dedicated position, and my big focus in the budget was sustainability, and I didn't have an easy way to see how this could be an ongoing FTE that was funded. Um, but the work is clearly there. And so my thought had been this would be the kind of level of effort you might put in the parks ballot measure because if that passed, there would also be a whole new set of of. Uh, capital dollars. So so what I would say, that, and the reason I propose it this way, is I do think the work is there. There's a lot of work that can be done well with a contracted uh, resource or a temporary resource that would support Mary Gardaki and the um, parks leadership. 
but I didn't feel it quite yet rose to the level of being, say, we can afford it as an ongoing, dedicated, sustainable FTE at this point. So that, that's the city manager perspective. Uh, but Lynn might speak more to exactly what this position would be doing. I really think that was another excellent um, description. And uh, yes, it does make a great deal of sense to use one-time funding and then potentially the ballot measure could uh, become a, a permanent funding source in the future. Um, right now, this, this is to help us catch up. We are behind in projects with some of the infrastructure projects, playground replacements, um, those types of things. Um, and Mary will be pretty um, occupied <laughs> Uh, for some time to come with the ballot measure. It, it's pretty intensive with administration and park planning. Um, so we would hope to get caught up on the projects that are in the CIP from the last couple of years, as well as the ones that are in the current, the 23-24 funded CIP. Okay. Thank you. Uh, a couple of uh, observations to set up some of our discussion coming forward. Um, looking at the jail medical costs, I think that is uh, a requirement, and, and um, uh, perhaps we may consider considering that, making that decision first when we get to the business meeting. And then through the parks um, set of uh, items in Amendment 2, my priorities are the special event support, um, and uh, beyond that, ha and then teen programs and parks planning support, but I'm not sure that I'm willing to go use more than half of our contingency set aside to fund these items uh, because we're, we're um, using, with the uh, jail medical costs, over 1.3 million of that 2.4 uh, going forward. The Kirkland Downtown Association request uh, I think it's something of a scale that if we chose to go forward, we'd have options like council contingency to do this. But as has been brought up through just the 10 minutes we've talked about it up here, there's a lot of details to, to go forward. Part of what KDA, the Kirkland Downtown Association, was proposing seemed to indicate that these kiosks would also be in sidewalks and public right away. And I think there needs to be much more of a community discussion before that's uh, a decision that we're ready to fund because a big piece of this is very uh, animated advertising. And then when I think about bright advertising on Park Lane, uh, that's something I uh, need to be folded into a lot more discussions. So I'm not ready to move forward on that. Uh, let's see. And then... Um, And I think that's that's it. More more when we get to our business meeting. Thank you. Great, thank you. And just to pile on, I I will say I I support the direction it feels like that we are going. I really do think that the kiosk idea is something that we should ask our um, economic development folks to look at in terms of its compatibility with the systems that we've got in place, and um, and just whether it's realistic because the whole concept of people just grab their phone and that's what they use. And actually, I think she talked about the, the software being downloadable on telephones, as I recall. So, um, so I'm comfortable with, with uh, putting that off for now. Um, I do support most of Amendment 2. Um, 
with the addition of the jail medical costs. It's expensive. Um, it, it could be that, and now we have the promotories on top of this. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm frankly willing to go where the city manager feels comfortable going. Um, so at this point in time, if we have to incorporate the jail medical costs to the degree that it takes it up to half of our fund, uh, just understanding that we do have significant reserves set aside as well uh, makes me comfortable going with the with the recommendation. With that, George, you want to proceed? Great, thank you, thank you all. Um, and so we're going to hand over. I'll hand over now to Kevin to the the twenty three twenty eight CIP updates. Good evening, Council. Uh, we have a, a number of housekeeping and other updates to the CIP since our last study session on October 4th. Uh, a number of these are related to service packages that were recommended by the city manager as part of the 23-24 budget. So you may have seen them before. Um, and this is just making sure that the, that the CIP is consistent with the budget. Uh, next slide. So we'll go through them by program. Uh, the first is we're adding $3 million into the Safer Routes to School Action Plan project from the school zone safety camera reserve. So you'll remember that council policy is that um, any uh, surplus reserve of the school zone safety camera um, program above operating costs is dedicated towards capital projects for, for school uh, safety um, projects. So this is, is part of that. So this is most of the projected reserve through 2024 uh, will be added to that capital project. And this is an, in addition to ongoing funding for that project, as well as uh, proposed funding from debt issuance uh, backed by the, the vehicle license fee. Um, second, we're moving up 2.5 million of secured external funding from Sound Transit for the Northeast 85th Street eastbound third lane, uh, 120th to 122nd Ave Northeast project. Um, and leaving 1.1 million in 23. This is uh, really just administrative. Uh, this agreement was signed with Sound Transit in July 2022, and uh, staff is uh, excited to get started on this project and, and start on pre-design and, and um, enter into to that contract. Um, and this will allow them to do that um, in order to meet deadlines set aside or set that set in the contract with uh, Sound Transit. Third, uh, we discussed this. Uh, this is in response to uh, City Council feedback at the October 25th uh, budget study session, but um, we're adding 50,000 of REIT 1 to 2023, 25, and 27 for the Neighborhood Traffic Control Program. Uh, so this will provide $50,000 annually. It was every other year. Now it's every year there'll be $50,000 there. Um, so that more funding will be available for the, the Neighborhood Traffic Calming Projects. Um, so there'll be $100,000 in the 23-24 CIP uh, for that project. Uh, also, we're recognizing a new $500,000 uh, city safety program federal grant, as well as matching REIT-1 funding um, for a Vision Zero safety improvement project. That's a crosswalk at Northeast 68th and 120th, uh, sorry, 112th Ave Northeast, as well as bike lanes on uh, Northeast 68th from 108th Ave. Uh, 104th of Northeast uh, with estimated completion in 2025. Next slide. And finally, for transportation, uh, we're adding $600,000 of REIT 2 reserves. Uh, so this is uh, the city entered into a signed use agreement with King County this year that it will provide $600,000 towards the design and construction of a public vehicle 
uh, crossing over the East Rail Corridor um, at, uh, in conjunction with the new Lee Johnson Chevrolet site. So this is funding that uh, to make sure that we're uh, meeting that agreement. Next slide. Uh, this is fairly administrative, um, but as we finalize the, the water sewer rate modeling, um, the proposed debt issuance strategy uh, was a little different than our initially we initially thought, um, and this is making sure that the CIP is matching that sewer rate model. Um, so that would require uh, just one bond issuance in 2027 uh, worth about $800 million in net proceeds. Next slide. Um, so we have a, a few different general government um, adjustments. A number of these are, are coming from service packages, as I discussed. So the first is that we're adding $250,000 in annual REIT 2 funding. Uh, using the affordable housing flexibility that uh, the city has uh, the authority on uh, to fund a new project called the Arch Trust Fund project in Kirkland to replace the, the existing funding that goes to REIT, um, which is uh, House Bill 1406. So this is actually an in, increase in, in transfers to, to uh, Arch. Um, we'll, we'll have to update this name before final adoption on December 13th to identify a specific project in Kirkland in order to meet the, the statutory regulations. We're working that out. We're also setting aside $1.2 million in REIT 1 funding uh, for theatrical rigging at the KPC, KPC rather, uh, which is contingent on matching state and donor funding. Uh, we're adding a $3.6 million uh, unfunded project facilities uh, for the fire station 24 retaining wall. Uh, and we're also moving some money around between some of the uh, facility sinking fund projects uh, in order to uh, provide for the increased cost of engineering design related to the, the parts maintenance operations HVAC replacement um, that this will um, meet additional needs to support energy efficiency and sustainability standards uh, will also allow for future uh, potentially future EV uh, charging capability of the site. Um, so staff's working on more advanced uh, estimates for that project and we'll come back in the, the 23-28 CIP update which will occur next year. Finally, uh, for general government, uh, city manager's office is recommending that we include a new facilities project for the potential acquisition of the Houghton Park and Ride purchase of, um, this is the washed out property and bridal trails uh, for public benefit using uh, general fund resources. So this is also uh, reflected in the budget. Uh, this is a project that uh, we heard about a bit last uh, meeting, um, but we're adding $330,000 for uh, the 132nd Square Park Capital Projects out of the REIT 1 reserves. Uh, this is $230,000 to uh, the surface water component of the project and another $100,000 to the park uh, playfields component. Um, it's needed for unexpected site conditions encountered during uh, construction and for operational maintenance and safety improvement opportunities including surface water vault access improvements. Um, and uh, there, it also includes the replacement um, uh, of unsuitable soils where the additional funds will be available for removing excess soils. So uh, we also have rod sites are here if you have any questions on that project. Look good, Kevin. All right. Uh, finally, uh, just two quick updates on some other questions from council. From previous study sessions. Um, there was a question, I believe, at the October 25th study session on how uh, the new street fund service packages and additional funding in the street fund would impact the, the pavement condition index and the PCI and the trajectory of that. 
Um, staff looked at this intensively, um, and you know these funds will allow city crews to respond to to pavement maintenance maintenance needs, and there is a you know an urgent need for for staffing uh, to that purpose. But because of the scale of um, of this funding, as well as how the PCI is actually sampled, the sample of the the larger network, uh, it's not expected to be reflected as an increase to the overall uh, PCI score at this time. Um, that will bring back more uh, discussion of, of maintenance funding and maintenance projects uh, in the CIP update next year as well. Uh, and the second one is just a real brief update on the South Fresno Fire Seismic and Recoding Construction Project. Um, there are, we talked about that last, I think, at the October 4th uh, study session. Um, there are several options under review that are at and above current funding, which is, uh, as of the last study session, at $10.5 million. Uh, with the cities of Bellevue and City of Redmond, uh, which are co-owners. Um, that's ongoing, so staff is continuing and will continue pre-design with consultant and return to council next year with more advanced cost estimates based on uh, the emergency storage and operational needs. So that's a definitely a dynamic project and we'll have more updates on that uh, next year. Is that a combined total with Bellevue and Redmond? Yes, that includes uh, external contributions, but there's some ongoing discussions on on what exactly those contributions will be, but yes. Okay, next slide. So finally, next steps. Uh, so as part of later in this agenda, we'll, we'll have the, um, the next public hearing on the 23-24 budget as well as um, a business item to discuss and approve um, the potential amendments that were discussed in this meeting uh, to the 23-24 the budget. Uh, and final adoption of both the 23-24 budget and the 2023-2028 capital improvement program uh, will occur on December 13th, which will be a pretty packed agenda. Um, if there's any other questions, we're happy to take those. Otherwise, uh, back to city manager. Council, any further discussion? Okay, I think you want to wrap it up and move on to our next item. That is the end of item one. So thank you to the team there. Thank you, everybody. Uh, so item two is the discussion of uh, the draft permanent supportive housing program agreements with King County. I believe our deputy city manager, Jim Lopez, is here to make that presentation. Also, Darcy Eiler is our uh, deputy city attorney. Hmm. We got a microphone that we can get here. And you'll probably need both of them. Jim, do you want to take them? We also have some guests here from King County. Jim, if you want to introduce them as well when you kick it So off. thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here tonight, Council, uh, presenting on the King County Permanent Supportive Housing Program. I'll be presenting tonight with Darcy Eilers, as the city manager noted, and I really have a lot of gratitude to Darcy. We've been working hard on this um, for quite some time, so thank you. I'd also like to acknowledge the director of the Department of Community and Human Services, Leo Flores here tonight, along with Simon Foster, who's the division director of that agency. Thank you both very much for being here tonight. Uh, they don't actually have a formal role in the presentation, but they are here. 
should they be needed to answer a question, but really just to show their support and the kind of collaboration that's going on between the city and the county. And I really do appreciate um, your presence and the gesture, so thank you very much. So, um, oop. A little cramped up here. <laughs> it's your sneak preview. So, thank you, David. So, we're going to move through tonight's presentation to get to the draft agreements because that's really the heart of what we need tonight. Um, thank you so much, Council. I know the packet is robust, to say the least. We really hit you with a lot. Uh, but that packet is not just for tonight's meeting. I think it's important for the community to know that's really reading through the holidays because we'll be back in January again to discuss our continued negotiations with the county and incorporating all the feedback we're getting from you tonight. So thank you very much for that and for the community to know there's a lot of reading in the packet should you want to be brought up to speed. So I'm going to move through the background with that in mind and then really get to the contract for tonight. So our recommendation tonight is that the council review and provide feedback on the proposed working draft for permanent supportive housing agreement, which we're affectionately calling the PSHA. It did not exist before this negotiation. I think Leo can confirm that. We're coining it, we're terming a phrase. Uh, so that draft agreement between the city of Kirkland and King County. And what we've done is we've included a working draft of something we're, term, we're calling a services agreement between the county and the future operator of the designated permanent supportive housing facility in Kirkland. All of this kind of infrastructure will hopefully make sense as we move through the proposal because we are trying to um, be as efficient as we can to live up to the terms and conditions of Res Resolution 5522, which I'll talk about in a minute. So very quickly, a quick definition, permanent supportive housing pairs subsidized housing with case management and supportive services. It really is a wonderful program. PSH offers wraparound services to foster housing stability, which may include case management, counseling, behavioral health supports, medical services, meals, um, even job counseling. It is really, it is permanent and it is very, very supportive. So the name is appropriate. And for more, I've included, for more on that definition, I've included a link to King County's website. Now, back in March, I think it was March 1st of this year, seems like, I don't know, a long time ago, just yesterday, um, we passed Resolution 5522, the Council. And that resolution authorized negotiations with one or more agreements that provide for such use of imposing reasonable regulations uh, in the facility, the siting of the facility in Kirkland. So essentially this provision, as articulated in section one, set the city manager off to create um, an agreement with the county, in section two, uh, to, to put this in a legal document, to take 5522 and the terms and conditions of 5522 and to negotiate that agreement. And that's the work we have been doing with the county since, um, we did an engagement process over the summer. Now, I don't have the full resolution in the, in the presentation. I believe it's in the packet. But just to, be a, to do a quick overview of the purpose, the purpose is to outline 
the key terms and conditions. That was the purpose of 5522. It was not intended to address all potential issues in agreement. That's kind of left for the work we're talking about tonight, which is why there's a lot of detail in the packet. We're trying to bring the details to life through the kind of principles and broader requirements of 5522. Um, and here's kind of the overall allocation. It has to include the allocation of services, operating funds, corresponding requirements for the permanent supportive housing in Kirkland. It also says the agreement has to be a legal document. Now, we originally used the term interlocal agreement, but we were not required to, to, to do that legal mechanism. So we did work collaboratively with the county to get what we think is the kind of Goldilocks document here, the perfect fit, which is our permanent supportive housing agreement document. So you don't need to worry that it's not an interlocal agreement. It carries the full force and effect of legal remedy, equitable remedy, that the term sheet requires. So I'm not gonna really spend any time on the community engagement and feedback. We have a kind of a full agenda tonight, but I do want, as the council knows, and I do want the community to know, the community engagement has been robust and it is well documented in the memorandum and packet tonight, probably too well documented. I mean, there's a lot of documents in there. Um, so please check out the packet for the community engagement and there'll be more on that as we move forward. I just do wanna say how grateful I am to our community because it was a very robust engagement in all forms. We did a town hall, we did focus groups, we did a lot of individual interviews, we walked Lake Washington Boulevard, there was a lot. And I think we've tried to impart that, um, that information in the packet which is on the website. So let's jump right into the draft agreements. So, and there are really two essential agreements that we call your attention to tonight. The first agreement is the PSHA that I've talked about uh, at, the, at the beginning of the presentation. This governs the relationship between the city and the county regarding this permanent supportive housing facility. When it is in final form, it can only be amended by the council. So this document, the PSHA, is the controlling document of this agreement. And it has the essential terms and conditions in it, and I'm gonna talk about that. Essentially, we have embedded the terms and conditions of Resolution 5522 by reference into the PSHA. We've, we've added certain other things in the proposed PSHA, and I want to emphasize these are proposed documents. We're still working with the county on these documents because there are things in the PSHA that aren't in 5522. The second document that we've put before you is the draft services agreement, and we abbreviate this SA. So this will govern the relationship between King County and the future operator of the city. The city is not a specific party to that agreement. But it will be an attachment to the PSHA, and it will be subject to further modification following the council approval of these documents with clear limits on what can be amended by the city manager in the county. And please, that's a typo. It's just the PSHA. I don't think the I has any... Uh, Significance. It was just to try to throw me off. Um, this is really important because there are things, and I'm going to go through in kind of painful detail the examples of those things, where you'll be delegating authority to the city manager 
as we implement the, the agreements with the county. And there are certain things that we, the county just needs to decide without us, like compensation and other issues that we really don't need to be a part of. Part of the importance of doing the agreements this way is upstream we're addressing a lot of the concerns raised in 5522, like we need to be a part of the operator, the selection of the operator, the term, the services agreement of the operator. Essentially, this draft services agreement, if approved when we can conclude negotiations with the county, which are ongoing, would be substantially similar to what the operator would be required to do. So you are knowing upstream of the whole process what that agreement would look like. And so would our community. So kind of, it's almost like a radical transparency here. We're, we're moving upstream to try to let everybody know what we're doing. Um, and in that space, um, more work is needed, but we're hopeful that we can get that work done. Okay, so with that as the kind of foundation to the presentation, the next several slides are going to go into the detail, details about how 5522 is now incorporated into these two agreements. And Madam Mayor, I'm going to go through each item and then pause, and I'll just rely on you if you want me to keep going, and we can aggregate questions or just stop and take questions as we go. And I think we can move through this in 30 minutes. Okay, so item number one in the term sheet is all about communications. Excuse me, Jim. <laughs> I think uh, Councilmember Black has a comment. Oh, sorry. Yeah, thank you, Madam Mayor. Before we uh, move on to the detail, I want to ask you a question that is um, uh, only to members of the bar can probably appreciate this, but uh, I just want to be clear um, uh, for ourselves and also for any members of the public who are watching this now or, or later. Uh, you mentioned that the PHS, PSHA um, can be amended only by the council. Uh, we have neighboring jurisdictions who, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have neighboring jurisdictions who actually have to amend their zoning code uh, to allow for permanent supportive housing in a similar type of zone as the La Quinta Inn. Um, we don't have to do that because our zoning code already allows this use at the site of the La Quinta Inn. Um, but um, if we had been required to do a zoning code amendment, what does it take to amend the zoning code? Is it the same for uh, members of the council as what would be required to amend the uh, permit supportive housing agreement? Yeah, I and I can defer to Dorothy. I, it's the same process by which you would take a council action, which is my understanding of it. You would need a majority vote of the council to amend the this agreement, and it's in partnership with the council. I'm speaking only from our end, but that's the process for the PSHA for the zoning process. I was just going to jump in and say, though some of the other neighboring cities and other cities in King County have done development agreements in order to take those sort of zoning related actions. And so they end up with some similar agreements like this, but just in the form of a development agreement, which is a land use action and involves SEPA analysis and other things associated with that, but also, as you know, does require council approval. So we're getting the same level of council oversight on this agreement with the county as we would if we were making zoning changes. So, to, so the same underpinning oversight, um, uh, council oversight is the same um, um, in all these different scenarios. Okay, thanks. Yep. Zoning, zoning code amendments would also involve the planning commission. Uh, 
uh, it would involve the Planning Commission in their role as advisors to the Council. Correct. Thanks. Okay. That's the, that voice is the city attorney who's omnipotently hovering over us. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. Go ahead. Okay, so item number one is about communications and performance review. And this is kind of a straightforward, you could see, this is good for me to just take a minute. On the left, on my left, the term sheet requirement is literally the language pulled, that, that heading term sheet requirement is literally the language pulled from the term sheet of 5522. On the right is where we have uh, specifically noted where those terms live in either the PSHA or the services agreement. So this is for the council to review as you move forward. Jim, for, can, I, Jim can I note that this, this is the table that's exactly in the packet also, so if it was easier to look at your packet pages, we just go through each block individually. And we, we did provide this notebook, which I kind of screwed up my presentation here by hitting the keyboard with, but you could follow along with. This would be the draft PSHA and the draft services agreement um, tabs. The actual physical documents are in there. But here, here's kind of the pullouts from this provision. Other than it exists in these documents, and we wanted you to see where they exist, is that the, PSA, this, the PSHA document provides for a report to the city council within six months of the opening of the facility uh, to the residents and then an annual report thereafter. Now, it also requires regular meetings between the county and the city and the operator, and it includes language for ad hoc community meetings. So this is you know, taken from the term sheet and this is a, a provision that is not controversial and we look forward to working with the county on. I have a question. Go ahead, Councilmember Pascal. Thank you. Jim, could you, could you explain what would be in this report? Is that, some, is that documented somewhere? What, I mean, what are our expectations um, or what would go into that report? Or should we clarify that somewhere or? Yeah, I think that is kind of an ongoing conversation with the county, but I think the there's a couple of things that immediately come to mind, which is the status of the program. Are there any elements left that they're working on or creating? And then this also is the performance management section. So we would work with the county and present to the council what performance metrics you would expect in the annual report. And if there's an ongoing check-in you'd like the city to do to make sure we're on track with those performance metrics, this is the place I think that would buying the county and the city to do that work. There's also some provisions in the services agreement between the county and the operator for the operator to provide reporting. So some of the same reporting information will be pulled out. That's page 17 of 18 of the exhibit to the services agreement. If you wanted to, if you were interested in looking at the specifics there for what's reported by the operator to the county, which includes those metrics about data each month on, um, exits, nights, households, things like that. So how the facility is being utilized. Thank you for pointing me to the right section there. Yeah, I, I think the re I just want to make sure that the expectations are clear on what the reporting mm -hmm. is and that all parties um, are comfortable with that and getting the right information. So thank you. Thank you. Good. Duly noted, we'll make sure to present that in detail. 
So item number two is the dispute resolution and remedies. The council did talk about this and we went, when we went through 5522 in some detail. We absolutely have a dispute resolution system. The PSHA contains a detailed process for handling disputes to ensure timely resolution. The services agreement also contains a robust corrective action process for the county to ensure the operator complies with the services agreement. And also importantly, just like an interlocal agreement would, this PSHA document contains several mechanisms for the city to gain county compliance. And I know this was a specific council ask. And we've included both uh, equitable remedies, which are specific performance, namely you, you need to do the specific thing you promised to do. We've included monetary damages. Not that we would ever need any of these things, but we also, there is also the possibility that the, the, the contract will be terminated. So we haven't really dived into the details of that, but essentially we feel these two documents embody the requirements of the term sheet. Keep moving. Item number three is amendments, and here, you know, if you can uh, give me just two minutes, uh, the agreement should include a process for amending the agreement uh, for providing required notifications. Throughout, there is a thread throughout all of these provisions, which is we have to make sure the county can hire an operator. You know, operators need to feel like they're going to be successful. So when we do these terms and provisions, we want to make sure we're um, not being too uh, uh, draconian for the operator to see and we want but we also want to make sure that we can be dynamic and make changes and amendments when we need to so in that spirit as I noted the PSHA cannot be amended without council approval think of that as the embodiment of resolution 5522 the services agreement can be amended with the county by the city manager for provisions related to the PSHA or resolution 5522 subject to any limitation, subject to the limitations of Article 2 of the PSHA. So the city manager can take actions, and we're going to go through some examples in a minute, to work directly with the county so that we don't get held up and we think there are issues that don't rise to the level of the city council. And then the county was pretty clear, and we agree, that they need to be able to amend the services agreement with their operator um, without the city manager approval for provisions that are just not related to 5522. We just don't want to get in the way of the county's daily operations with the operator. And Darcy, if I could lean on you a little bit, maybe you could go through some of the examples for each of those. I think Jim provided an example earlier about something that the county and the operator would be negotiating among themselves that wouldn't involve the city manager and wouldn't need approval of the city to proceed and compensation was an example there. There's in the service agreement, it clearly is out compensation. So we don't believe that's something this, that was covered in 5522 or that the city would need to be involved in. Other examples would be, there's um, a number of services that an operator may provide that aren't the ones specifically called out by the council in 5522. There was a set of, of ones that we did specifically identify as needing to be provided to residents of this facility. And if there are other uh, other ones that the, that the operator offers and then maybe doesn't want to continue offering, 
that would be between the county and the operator as well. Um, so, and then examples where did you, uh, the city yeah. manager examples. So, um, the the PSHA clearly provides that the city manager wouldn't have authority to remove a requirement of 5522. So 5522 doesn't allow camping at the facility. The city manager couldn't agree to have that occur. But um, the, the examples where they would be able to make amendments different than the one that you saw that you'll see attached to whatever the final is that you see, it would be dispute resolution provisions. As long as they're consistent with the concepts of 5522, there isn't specific requirements of what that process looks like. So that could be amended so that it was functional um, between the services provider and the operator, I mean the county and the operator. Um, insurance and indemnification provisions of the services agreement, the agreement between the operator and the county, those are something that the city manager will be reviewing and would need to look over but um, and could allow sort of would say approval for those because those are called out in 5522. So we're trying to be thoughtful about everybody's interest and let the decision-making go at the level most appropriate. So operator selection, uh, we have the opportunity to review and approve the selection process. We feel like this upstream process really does a lot to accomplish that. I don't have any additional comments on item four. Uh, item five, the operator service agreement. Uh, to review and approve the terms and, terms and conditions of the operator agreement. That's, again, the document that we have before you. Um, we're really trying to push a lot of that work upstream so that you could see and the community could see what that services agreement looks like. The facility use, the uh, resolution the, count, the count, council approved was pretty clear. It will be used exclusively per, for permanent supportive housing. This was a communication we made throughout this process. There's no changes to that. So sex offender prohibition, 5522 was also very clear that the city and the operator shall maintain strict compliance with existing state law limitations of registered sex offenders living within 880 feet of public and private schools. We all agree, county and city, that this provision, this law applies. And I think what's really important here is both the county and the city agree that a process needs to be established so that the county or its designee is responsible upstream, not relying on the Department of Corrections or the criminal justice system to make sure that the um, facility is compliant with the state requirement. So here we've introduced the concept of a criminal background screening and the uh, burden or the responsibility of the county or its designee to ensure compliance with this state law. And we think that's a, an important communication to make, both to you, the council, and the community, that this is uh, very proactive on this uh, important state law. Now, it's helpful, I think, and I thank Darcy for doing the extra work here, it's helpful, I think, to kind of list what we're actually talking about in the state requirements of what might be a prohibited offense, and it's RCW 9.94A, there's 703, parenthetical 1, parenthetical small c. And this, I'm not going to read through them, but here they are. These are the prohibited crimes. Now, I believe the prohibition lasts the term of the sentence. So I believe the prohibition lasts for as long as the sentence, and including any prohibition, uh, probation associated with the sentence. But this is uh, 
the agreement that we have that we would have a screening process uh, in this facility. Now, the next, so we also thought it would be helpful to put in the state law has a preemption provision for counties and cities from adopting rules, regulations, codes, statute ordinances pertaining to residency restrictions of persons convicted of any sex offense at any time. So the city does have real concerns about moving beyond the state, the state prohibitions. The state has clearly opined in this category and they've told cities and counties what they, who is not eligible to live near a school. And we have real concerns about expanding on that given the state has created this preemptive language. So we feel like we're doing uh, what we can and we're also consistent with good public policy. Um, the next item, item eight, tries to bring um, more definition or clarity to the requirement that the county and its designee recognize that the facility shares a border with a school. And here, we, the council wrote, the agreements will include provisions that individuals who do not meet the operating and screening protocols of the city and county approved facility operator and other requirements within the city and county approved operator agreement will not be housed within the facility. So here's where staff kind of moved with a proposed solution to um, one of the pending issues in the spirit of 5522. The county, we're working with the county and they've been very, very collaborative on these points, but this was not an agreement in 5522 with the county. And I think it's important for me to say that these are kind of ongoing negotiations with the county. Because the city's response is that the PSHA requires that the county perform criminal background screenings, and we're gonna talk about what that means in a minute, and requires that anyone with a pending criminal charge or criminal conviction for a sex offense not who is not otherwise mandatorily excluded undergo what we're terming as an individualized assessment. So this is the, the city creating a process to live up to the spirit of 5522 and stay within the four corners of the law. The current draft of the services agreement includes a requirement that screening includes a national criminal background check by a third party. We've been working with the county on this. The county has presented very several very legitimate concerns, but they've also presented a, you know, a lot of confidence that they can live up to the um, interests of the city here to ensure compliance with our individual assessment. And the county has recently proposed an alternative screening process, which would be effectively a background screening process to achieve these ends. Now I've included a kind of one page description of those, um, of that kind of proposal. And staff is reviewing this proposal and we need more time to work with the, the county on it, but it does, the county's proposal does address a couple of things. One, the idea of this more uh, kind of in, um, a little bit more of a burden to the applicant to have a criminal background screening is likely to be a barrier to entry for that person just by the process by which you go, go through to do that. 
And the county's process seems to be more dynamic because they, I believe, and I'm not going to hold them to it, but I do believe their proposal includes annual screenings, which we didn't expect to get out of our background process. And I know several members of the community have asked for annual screenings. So we're working on the details of this, but the interest that we're hopeful to satisfy is that there is an individual assessment. We are calling out a process for those folks that have a um, criminal charge, a pending criminal charge, or a criminal conviction for a sex offense who are not otherwise mandatorily excluded. And I'm going to stop there. Um, and with the proviso that the council know that we are in ongoing conversations with the county, uh, I'll Take a minute. If it helps, Jim. The next um, slide shows those other yes. offenses that would be captured by the screening process for individualized review. And the underlying crimes are captured in the 880-foot prohibition. There's overlap. Okay, I've got a com uh, comment from Councilmember Falcone. Yes. Is this the time to do kind of wrap up overarching comments? Yes, or is uh, well, I have more items. Oh. I can wait. I'm, I, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I've got some comments and questions on screening. If we want to take these, let's go ahead now. Okay. Thank you, uh, and thank you, Jim and Darcy for and um, Leo and team for all the work and the negotiation here. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of great detail that that helps with this. One of the things that is open throughout these discussions is is time frame and is that something when we're talking about how far back we're looking is that something that um you're looking for council direction um from or is that something that was part of the negotiation with the uh operator because it's uh blank throughout the service agreement the, we are we absolutely do intend to include a time frame, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. We are working with the county about that, and I'm okay. in discussions internally about the best time frame. We're going to continuing to do our research on that, but the proposal will include. I think legally we do have to include a time frame. Okay, it would be great to have some options or some background or recommendations as we get to that point. Um, secondly, I appreciate the amount of detail with the individual assessment process and page seven. Of, of the um, agreement. One of the things that I want to make sure that we've taken a look at is between subsection D, which says the contractor may not deny admission solely based on arrest records, and subsection or item E that says if the individual doesn't provide an explanation, the contractor will assess the individual based upon available information. And what I think we're trying to get at is saying if someone's providing some mitigating explanation that needs to be considered, I also want to make sure we're covering the other piece where we may have some information based on official records, but a, a uh, applicant that may not be providing any additional information. And if all we have is the uh, criminal record, that that's something that we can make a uh, screening decision on. Can I jump in, Jim? Please. The reason for the arrest record language is that's a requirement of the Fair Housing Act. So okay. we can't, nobody, how the operator of the county couldn't make a decision solely based on an arrest record itself rather than the conviction. So 
the con a conviction, a resulting conviction, is what could be considered by itself without additional information from the applicant. Um, but just the arrest itself, even police records explaining the incident could be utilized and wouldn't be the arrest itself. But if all they saw was that an arrest was made for something and there's no resulting conviction, that That's law the law prohibits that from being an excluding factor by itself. Uh, I appreciate that explanation. Yep. I think what we're what um, I would like to see is if you have other uh, official records without an applicant response that that provides enough of a record that when under state and federal law we have the ability to make a decision, we can do so. Um, secondly, um, the um, language, and this is page 296 of our packet. It's not in the binder that I can find. It's the draft screening criteria. Okay. It talks about annual reports, which is great, but other in the original PSHA agreement, it talks about an initial six-month report. And I think when we're talking about the population and the screening process, that that information needs to be part of that initial report. Okay. We know about that the initial population as the facility comes online in addition to the ongoing, uh, Got it. ongoing report. Got it. Thank you. And thank you for referencing the e Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, Jim, would you mind, I don't know if we're able to go back to the slide with the preemption language from state statute very easily. Here we are. Okay, thank you. It's not on our screen, so I'll look up here. Um, Okay, so um, the state law, this is the first time I'm seeing the state law preemption statute, but um, it, the way I read this, state law preempts uh, City of Kirkland from adopting, uh, presumably zoning code would be under the definition of regulations and codes um, that pertain to the residency restrictions for persons convicted of any sex offense at any time. So uh, this kind of goes back to my questions around zoning decisions. So my reading of the state law preemption is if that we were, um, if the city of Kirkland were in a position of trying to to um, address some of the community concerns that are reflected in 5522 through zoning code, uh, we wouldn't be able to do so due to the state law preemption, uh, at least to the extent that our zoning code would pre prohibit uh, sex offenders from living uh, permanently in homes on this site. Is that correct? That's correct. For okay. mandatory Thank exclusion. You. Yes. Go ahead, Jim. Okay, so the next provision, and thank you, uh, the next provision, ongoing collaboration. We, we're very, very pleased with the county and their collaborative framework. We feel there's nothing about this particular provision that uh, warrants additional comment. Um, it is in the PSHA, so it is embodied in the agreement. Again, the, I have to say, I think 24-hour staffing shows up like six times in this document. It's really, I'm confident there will be 24-hour staffing in the agreement. But for the sake of completeness, we did put it where it is in the PSHA and the service agreement. A prohibited use of the facility, we uh, of course included that it is not a designated supervised safer consumption site, a supervised safer injection facility, or a supervised safer injection service. This was in, of course, the term sheet. 
we put that in this agreement as well. Okay, so the camping prohibition, um, the term sheet was pretty clear, no camping or camping of any kind at the site. The county and the city um, are completely on the same page about this, and I think, that, in fact, the county moved quickly. We appreciate that when we had an incident or a uh, yeah, situation earlier. Now, we're very careful when we add anything in the document regarding 5522 term sheet, the term sheet. So we noted that we added a specific reference to car camping in language explaining camping as any form of person sleeping overnight outdoors or in vehicles. We also included additional language that, quote, the facility shall not operate as a safe parking or other program for individuals experiencing unsheltered homelessness. We put that language in. Uh, and we just put a, an asterisk to let you know that we, we did that. Now, the camping prohibition does have a, some complexity, and I think it's important to just take a minute and talk about that, um, although I know time is of the essence. So the county and the city are, again, in complete agreement that camping is not allowed. Uh, the county has indicated that rather than the operator, that the county is responsible for enforcement of this requirement, and we are completely fine with that. The operator will not be permitted to offer or approve any camping on the site, but given that there is complexity around removing folks for any public space, um, we want to make sure that we are in full alignment with the county and that we will work together on law enforcement compliant with federal and state law to do this. And we just want to let you know in the community know we're working together on that and it's not an easy issue, but it's one that we are going to enforce. So local referrals, this is um, again, complete alignment with the county. In fact, we're very grateful uh, in the materials you'll see up to 65 out of every 100 rooms are available for a local referral network, 35 mandatory to the city, 30 if we can send them, likely within a prescribed period of time. I think we're working on that. But the county has been very um, collaborative and we're very pleased with the, the offer. Um, we still need to work through all the complexities of what that means. What is the local referral network? What is the jurisdiction of the local referral network? These are big policy issues that we're going to come back to the council, this is your pay grade, and we need to work through what the those answers are. Uh, it's not part of this presentation. We're a little bit at the in the details of the agreement, but we do have uh, complete alignment with the city on the referrals. Uh, so supportive uh, services, once again, complete alignment. These, uh, these programs provide um, really great, robust services, and the county is agreeing to that and it's in the PSHA. So very quickly, I'll move through this uh, quickly. Re the 5522 requires that the future operator has the, developed the following plans. A community relations plan, a safety and security plan, and a code of conduct. Now this, uh, the services agreement contains the requirement that these plans be developed and that the city manager must approve the plans. This is a level of detail that we think rests with the city manager. This is our proposal. As well as the Kirkland Police Department must approve the safety and security plan. That is in the term sheet. That's actually a council <laughs> requirement. So the uh, services agreement, you'll see in the services agreement 
First, you'll see that each, this language is right out of the term sheet. The requirement that they be in the service agreement is in the PSHA, so you know they're gonna be there. The implementation of these, each of these um, very important plans rests with the city manager and all of us on the staff to make sure that it lives up to the terms of the 5522. Now, a couple of points on the security plan. First, the security, the services agreement contains the following additional language, and this was requested by the county, and we're fine with it, that the county requested the term disruptive from the term sheet have a definition. So we're adding the, this is for clarity, so we're adding the phrase disruptive behavior, we're proposing to add the phrase, Disruptive behavior is behavior that disrupts or interferes with the rights and comforts of persons living, working, or visiting the area. And I'll clarify that that's a definition we made up. The county asked for a definition, and we did that. So we, made that we may still bring back something a little different than that. We tend to make things up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we also, the county requested the term reasonable be added before community concerns. And it's usually, I think, a good idea to add reasonableness. And yes, we were at that level of detail over the last several weeks. The county also proposed a reasonable limitation to the requirement, I think this, forgive me for, that the requirement that there be a county and operator contact to respond 24-7 to city and community concerns. In fairness to the county, if you have an emergency at two in the morning, call the police. You can call the county tomorrow, the next day, or the city or the operator. So we feel like it's, um, we did not include the language because we don't, we don't really mess with 5522, but we think it's a reasonable request. So if, if the council is okay with that, we think we could put that in. Um, so the last item is the code of conduct. This is an important point because a lot of the feedback from the community was what's the criteria to get in? How, what's the criteria for you to be asked to leave? And what's the performance criteria? I think council member Pascal asked that earlier. Community wants to know those three things and a lot of other things, but that's how I summarize it. So the code of the, the services agreement contains the following additions to 5522. One, the county requested that we add jurisdictional partners identified by the city and the county to the list of those consulted on the code of conduct. We, as a staff, are fine with that. We think we're gonna build a network with our sister cities and partners. They should have a say in that. For clarity, we've added the statement that consequences will be up to and including eviction. We did get feedback that the community wants to know what is the consequence of um, violations of the code of conduct and what are the consequences of violation, therefore, of the lease. And we, we've asked to put that language in so that there's clear consequence. Uh, the operator has a clear consequence if you don't live up to the code of conduct. And the county requested to add smoking indoors and in public places to the list of topics that will be addressed in the code of conduct, and we have no problem with that. So that brings us to next actions, and I'll turn it back over, city manager, to you, Madam Mayor. We're asking that we would let the council know that we continue our negotiations with the county. Uh, we seek input. Um, at a public hearing on the proposed drafts, which I think we're proposing to be in January. Uh, we'd like to bring the final PSA and SA for consideration and decision by the council at that time. That's our target, maybe the first council meeting in January. 
And if the council then approves the documents in the PSHA is executed by the city and county, staff will work closely with the county throughout the operator procurement process to finalize the specific terms and conditions of the services agreement once the actual operator is selected and partner with the county and the operator to ensure compliance with the terms and conditions of these agreements. Now we do hope to get feed this feedback tonight and work with the community, continuing to work with the community prior to the January hearings. That's our plan. And then sketching out perhaps a decision in mid-January, and I believe the county is signed on to this timeline, so I think we're, we're asking for that um, for our next actions. With that, I turn it back to you, Madam Mayor. Thank you very much, and we'll start with council members. Okay. Jim, can I add add one last thing? This is Kevin. I'm sorry for interrupting. Jim, I just wanted to uh, add on to what you just said by indicating that you you've made a, a commitment. City manager has made a commitment to continue individual conversations with stakeholders, whether it's Eastside Preparatory School or service providers or others, in addition to the process that you outlined to sort of inform our negotiations with the county going forward. That is correct. And members of the Eastside Preparatory School are here tonight. Thank you for, for joining us. Okay, back to Councilmember Nixon. So uh, a couple of questions about some of the most recent things that you um, presented. Um, it says that the code of conduct will address threatening or unsafe behavior, but it's not clear whether that means only between residents, say while on the property, or it also, if it also involves behavior directed toward non-residents off the property. Uh, can you clarify that? Um, we're working with the county on those issues. I think the default standard, Councilmember Nixon, that we've been operating under is what is normal to the private sector. Like, how do, um, what are the requirements and the terms, conditions of codes of conduct in private landlord tenant relationships as kind of a foundational point? But I think there are, um, provisions in a code of conduct that we could write in that are more expansive. Um, I think we're starting from a place of um, mirroring the private sector and then we could take guidance between now and January should um, uh, we get direction to expand that. And the other limitation there is that, th that these residents will be tenants subject to the Residential Landlord Tenant Act's restrictions on when someone can be evicted and sort of what provisions can apply. So that's not going to, that's not to say that there won't be anything in the code of conduct, but there are limits to what can be in there and what the consequences can be that are governed by state law on tenancy. Okay, second question. Um, it sounds like because of this preemption that if someone has a prior conviction of a serious violent crime that had no sexual motivation, that they cannot be excluded. Is that correct? I think the preemption, and Darcy, I can defer to you, refers to sex crimes only. The, the preemption is for sex offenses only. The, there's nothing in state law that prohibits different restrictions related to other types of crimes, although not, that's not related to that specific preemption. I haven't thought about whether there might be other reasons we wouldn't do that, but. Yeah, so maybe I'm misunderstanding this understanding the term preemption in this context because it came across to me as saying local governments could not add any other crimes to the list that cause people to be excluded 
from uh, residing within a certain distance of schools. Is no, it's local governments cannot make additional residency restrictions on people that are already restricted by state law from residing in those areas. And I think it's... We couldn't make the restriction, you know, 1,500, you know, 2,000 feet because it's 880. And we couldn't say, and also we include every park because they've, the state has spoken about where you can have a mandatory exclusion, entire exclusion for people that have been convicted of sex offenses. And there's the no, but if we, if, if we were to decide that someone who has a conviction history of serious violent offenses against strangers, say, for example, yep. we could exclude them as well? I don't think this provision prohibits us from excluding. Okay. Um, and finally, um, let's say a resident does commit a sex offense or a crime with sexual motivation that would cause them to be excluded. At what point in the process of dealing with that can they actually be excluded? Probably not when they are arrested. It's probably not when they're charged. It probably requires them to have actually been convicted, and then presumably they're going to jail. We would hope. Yeah. It's not always a sure thing. Um, so, um, so they could continue to live in the facility while they're out on bail, while they're awaiting uh, uh, trial, and even while they're on appeal even after they've been convicted. Is that correct? I think so, but I do think the code of conduct potentially could address those issues. Like we haven't gone through the details of any, what the violations of the code of conduct might be, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dossie. I think the general provisions of landlord-tenant, the Landlord-Tenant Act would apply as defined in the code of conduct that we agree on. Yeah, I, I mean, if someone was arrested within this facility for an offense but had not yet been convicted and so doesn't have a court order prohibiting them from residing within the facility under the mandatory prohibition, nothing within the restrictions we have here would would prohibit the operator from removing that person from the facility under their own standards of, of care for their additional residents that they have um, and within the bounds of their requirements of the of the landlord tenant act so um, yeah but, it, but would it have to be an offense against another resident or could it be somebody in the community that would cause them to violate the code of conduct and be removed I think that's still an open question and yeah that the code the code of conduct is not we haven't that code of conduct isn't developed because it was it's meant to be intended to be enveloped with that operator when they come about and to see sort of what they start with um, and and we believe that those will you know sort of resemble like like Jim said sort of the private sector in terms of, of tenants um, but then can also include additional restrictions that that ultimately the city manager has to approve that code of conduct before it's before it's utilized so um, there's some level of oversight there for what that will include and, and also the requirements of 5522. But you're right, it's not clear about 
resident to resident or out in the community and what sort of what those level of activity is that gets captured by the code of conduct? Councilmember Nixon, we could take those fact patterns and work with them. Yeah, and I would appreciate that. I think, um, well, I'll just say that throughout this entire process from day one, I have always said that the main concern I have is with people who have a proven history of violent crimes against others, mm -hmm. right, especially strangers, uh, and whether they will be placed here intentionally. And so I want these issues to be addressed. Thank you. The other, I'll just add one additional layer there about sort of, I'd mentioned earlier the Fair Housing Act. So there are some restrictions there on whether, you know, criminal history can be utilized to reject a resident and that that's why we built this individualized assessment. So there is a requirement there in order to avoid conflict with the Fair Housing Act that there be recency, severity, and um, sort of the nature of the crimes for people that that's reviewed. And so I don't think that's would be limited to crimes when you come in, but could also would also capture those crimes that occur while you're a resident. So, yeah. Council, uh, we've got 20 minutes left. I guess I'm wondering if you want to proceed with this or if we, in, and if we should defer the station area plan till a future meeting. Yeah, we can maybe talk a little bit about the end, but probably uh, it would probably be a future meeting. Okay, thank you. Then I go to Councilmember Black. Oh, well, thank you, but I actually have a couple of my colleagues I know had my other hand raised earlier, although my comment does actually directly relate to... We'll go in my order. Okay, thank you, sorry. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Madam Mayor. So um, uh, one one quick question just to follow up on this, uh, this line of um, questioning that uh, Councilmember Nixon was asking about. And I realize I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that we do not have residential landlord tenant lawyers on our staff. We have municipal lawyers on our staff. So asking them to understand all the nuances of the residential landlord tenant act is asking a lot. Uh, but I do appreciate um, the um, assistant uh, uh, city attorney's uh, answer to the question uh, concerning what the residential landlord tenant act does allow with respect to exclusion. Um, and I, I won't, there's, there's any number of extremely important policy reasons why we have those laws in place and why generations of lawmakers before us have established those as principles that are important. Um, and I think they apply equally in this case. That said, and again, we're not residential landlord tenant lawyers in this room, but um, it is my understanding that if it is the terms of a lease, if in the terms of a lease, which I would assume the code of conduct would basically be uh, uh, integrated for all intents and purposes into the lease agreement, that if that code of conduct um, exclude, you know, established that it was essentially a breach of the lease to be convicted of a felony, it is my understanding that even being charged with a felony is enough for a three-day three day, uh, notice to vacate under the Residential Landlord Tenant Act. Before I said all that in order to say before we let stand our sort of unsure answers about this question, uh, maybe staff could come back to us um, and give us sort of a clear answer to the question of, of, of when someone charged with a felony, if a felony charge is a violation of the code of conduct, if they could be asked to vacate under the Residential Landlord Tenant Act. That would be super helpful. In the fair housing in the well with the fair housing as an overlay is a is an overlay uh yeah over that so 
And then I have one one technical question. Just I don't want to. Another thing that I don't want to leave um, our, uh, our our community uncertain about. And it was something you said at, earlier about the termination of the agreement, the permanent supportive housing. And I realize that's still under negotiation. But a lot of folks, when they hear the term termination, they don't draw a distinction between term of the agreement and the ability and the and the rights of the parties to terminate the agreement. My reading of this agreement is it's term. It, the term of this agreement is from the date it's signed until the date that the La Quinta, uh, former La Quinta site is no longer being used as a permanent supportive housing facility. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Jim, as we're talking about the process for the community relations plan, safety and security plan, and code of conduct uh, approved by the city manager, the success of this facility really uh, rests on the, the operation of those plans. And I'm wondering before January if we could get some information on what the anticipated process would be for approval. I know when we have other administrative approval processes like something that may be a planning director approval, there is an opportunity for public comment. And I want to make sure that we talk about, one, these documents being uh, open public documents that um, are published that people can access, and second, that there is an opportunity to get some um, uh, feedback for consideration before those are approved by the city manager. I'd like to get some information on that. Sure. The other thing that would be helpful for Director Floor or others is if there are examples of such plans used in facilities elsewhere in the county today, uh, it would be great to have those. I recognize that from your discussion before, you want to give operators the opportunity to uh, do things their way, but it would be helpful context to see how these are used elsewhere. Thank you. We can do that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Council Member Falco. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, we'll try to be brief. I know we're hungry and we need some time to eat tonight. <laughs> uh, first, I want to say just how incredibly proud I am of the city of Kirkland for welcoming this much, much needed housing um, to, into our community. We understand that a housing first approach provides our unhoused neighbors with the dignity and respect that they deserve. And we know that it's a proven successful approach to housing our unhoused neighbors. Um, thank you in particular to Deputy City Manager Lopez and other city staff, to King County, to community members and organizations, some of which are present here tonight. So thank you for being here, um, for working together on our plan uh, for welcoming this new housing into our community. I know there are a lot of different opinions and I couldn't be prouder of how our staff are handling this challenge. It is a true partnership that I'm really, really proud to be a part of. Okay, so my feedback on the draft documents. Overall, I think these agreements look substantially really good. Um, we're headed in the right direction, and I know there's just a bit more work to do to finalize these documents, as you've really um, articulated well tonight. I do support staff's recommendation on individualized assessment over mandatory exclusion. Um, I'm also I'm interested in the county's proposed criminal screening process for this. And that's because the framework both aligns with addressing the concerns of our community regarding those with um, a sex offense on their record, while also focusing on how to ensure that the operator is set up to best meet the needs of potential residents. And that focus is so key. Uh, and that's the lens that I apply here and that I hope that we continue to apply. Um, and I, I support the criminal screening process outlined by the county if, um, they can fill in some of the gaps with greater specificity. I found that document to be just a bit too vague, so I would like to know a little bit more about those details and assuming that those details meet um, the city's interest. 
I also, as you mentioned, Deputy City Manager, appreciate the county offering to complete annual screenings as well, which I think goes above and beyond to address some of the concerns that we've heard from the neighboring schools and community members. So thank you to the county for that. That said, I do have concerns about both the potential barriers and potential burden, and you touched on this, um, Deputy City Manager, that such a screening process may pose to potential residents. And again, the extent of this likely depends on the details of the screening process, which are still being negotiated, I understand. Um, I wanna draw our attention to the draft services agreement, program descriptions, definitions, which is part D, item seven, which is defining a housing first approach. And it says, quote, in order to achieve a housing first system orientation, homeless housing units in the system must remove screening barriers and screen in homeless households, many of whom may have barriers that traditionally make it more difficult for them to rent in the private market. Requiring background checks is one of the traditional barriers that makes it more difficult for some of our unhoused neighbors to rent in the private market. And I understand the concern that we're trying to address here. However, we need to acknowledge the potential implications of requiring background checks and do what we can to mitigate them. There are folks who may have a criminal history that's not even relevant to our purposes here um, and that wouldn't get turned away because of it, but they may choose not to undergo it out of shame or embarrassment or fear. And, and in addition to this potential barrier um, to housing created by adding a criminal screening process, I'm also concerned, um, as Deputy Mayor touched on earlier, about the process could create a burden in the application process, depending again on those details, that it may be an insurmountable challenge to, to provide some of the documentation that would be required during such a process. So that said, I'm confident that we, meaning the city, county, and potential future operator, um, can come up with solutions to help mitigate these concerns. Uh, so let's add some specificity in these documents about how the implications of this process, the screening process, could be will be mitigated. So again, I support staff continuing in this direction with the individualized assessment screening process in our negotiations with the county. And I'm looking forward to welcoming neighbors in this new housing soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And just echoing um, Councilmember Falcone's comments for, for the deep gratitude your council feels for the work that you guys have been doing for over a year now. Um, has it been over a year? Close. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, with that, is there any final, anything? I think we have what we need, City Manager. Okay. Um, Kurt, do you want to do any discussion at all? you got 10 minutes. Um, I don't think so. I think we might just ask some questions at the end of the meeting for our council input. Uh, we were just trying to figure that out, but I think it would be too hard to sort of take what we have and get it to 10. So All right. we'll have Thank a proposal you for you at the end of the night. Then we will return at 7.30. Thank you. <laughs> we'll try it again. We are back in session. Um, 
following a study session on two topics. We spent a good deal of time on our preliminary 23-24 budget and the preliminary 23-28 capital improvement program and the draft permanent supportive housing program agreement with King County. Uh, we were we had to defer our uh, discussion of the uh, 85th Street Station area plan because we ran out of time. Uh -huh. City Manager? Yeah, so Madam Mayor, I want to propose a change to the agenda to have the stationary plan item discussed instead of the comp plan update. The comp plan update is informational only, and there is a December 8th Planning Commission meeting, so we think it might be helpful to get the Council's feedback on the stationary plan tonight, and then bring the comp plan back uh, for a future meeting if that works for the council. Council? Okay, that sounds good. Okay, thank you. So with that, we are at <clears throat> honors and proclamations. Um, the first proclamation this evening will be the Transgender Day of Remembrance Proclamation. And receiving that with uh, Councilmember Falcone is going to deliver it with me, and receiving it will be Ginger Chin and a group. Uh -huh. Let's all meet up front. So if all of our guests can join the mayor up here at the front. And we'll be proclaiming November 20th as Transgender Day of Remembrance in Kirkland, Washington for the reasons that will be outlined in the proclamation. Welcome, everybody. Okay, so we're going to do things a little bit non-traditionally tonight, and I'm going to be holding Deputy Mayor Arnold's microphone. Thank you very much for letting me borrow it. Tonight, I will be reading a proclamation of the City of Kirkland proclaiming November 20th, 2022 as Transgender Day of Remembrance in Kirkland, Washington. Whereas in 1999, Gwendolyn Ann Smith, a transgender activist, founded Transgender Day of Remembrance to honor Rita Hester, a transgender African-American woman who was murdered in 1998. And whereas, designated on November 20th of each year, Transgender Day of Remembrance honors the memory of the transgender people whose lives were lost to senseless violence, transphobia, self-harm, and structural inequities. And whereas national numbers reveal that fatal crimes are rising, marking 2021, the year with the most transgender or gender nonconforming people fatally shot or killed by other violent means. 
And it is known that there are many other crimes that are unreported or misreported. And whereas LGBTQIA organizations, community members, and allies help raise awareness of the importance of inclusion, protections, and respect for those who are transgender. And whereas it is critical that an intersectional perspective and acknowledgement of systemic racism, classism, sexism, and homophobia is needed to effectively address the needs and concerns of transgender individuals and other gender nonconforming people. And whereas African-American and Latina, Latinx transgender women, as well as other transgender people of color, disproportionately make up the majority of those murdered, attacked, and denied equal treatment throughout our country. And whereas those lost this year and in years prior deserve to be honored and remembered, their lives mattered. And they will forever be missed by their friends, family, partners, and community. And whereas individuals who identify as transgender should be acknowledged, accepted, and validated. And whereas our city is proud of and strengthened by the rich diversity of Kirkland community members of all identities and will continue to advocate for and promote inclusion. Now, therefore, Mayor Penny Sweet, Mayor of Kirkland, on behalf of the City Council, does hereby proclaim November 20th, 2022, as Transgender Day of Remembrance in Kirkland, Washington, and invites our community to help raise awareness of the lived experience of transgender people everywhere to help foster a more equitable and inclusive community. Just on behalf of P Flag Bellevue Eastside and Eastside Pride, organizations that work to create more loving and supportive families for LGBTQ youth and LGBTQ loved ones, I want to say thank you to the city of Kirkland for extending this warm arm of safety and acceptance to this community and the families who only seek to fulfill all of their potential. Thank you. It is wonderful to have such a large group. Oh, she was going to say that. <clears throat> okay. Our next proclamation is going to be the Native American Heritage Day proclamation, which will be read by Councilmember Curtis. Unfortunately, we don't have anybody here to receive this today. We're going to try harder next year. Um, but Councilmember Curtis, please proceed. 
Thank you, Madam Mayor. And I was also going to say it's so nice to see so many people in chambers. I know you're all leaving soon, but it's nice to see your, <laughs> your faces right now. So thank you for coming. Um, proclaiming November 25th, 2022 as Native American Heritage Day in Kirkland, Washington. Whereas the city recognizes that Kirkland and other communities in East King County are built upon the ancestral land of the Coast Salish, the Duwamish, Muckleshoot, Puyallup, Skykomish, Snoqualmie, Snohomish, Sugawamish, the Tulalip people, and other tribes of the Puget Sound Salish. And whereas we honor with gratitude the land itself, the first people who have reserved treaty rights and continue to live here since time immemorial and their ancestral heritage. And whereas the city values the many contributions made to our community, through the knowledge, labor, technology, science, philosophy, arts, and the deep cultural contribution from the first people of this region that all have substantially shaped the character of Kirkland. And whereas the city has developed a hyper-local Kirkland Native History document and a formal local land acknowledgement in collaboration with the Duwamish, Muckleshoot, Snoqualmie, and Suquamish tribes for review, for review by the Kirkland community and approval by the Kirkland City Council. And whereas the state of Washington has designated the Friday immediately following the fourth Thursday in November as Native American Heritage Day. And whereas Kirkland joins other cities and governments across the nation in celebrating Native American Heritage Day and honoring the unique heritage of our region's first people and reaffirming a commitment to respect each tribe's sovereignty and cultural identity. Now, therefore, Penny Sweet, Mayor of Kirkland, on behalf of the Kirkland City Council, do hereby proclaim November 25th, 2022, as Native American Heritage Day in Kirkland, Washington, and encourage all community members to observe this day to honor and celebrate the thriving cultures and unique heritage of the first people of our region. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Okay, that takes us to our communications section and items from the audience. This is a time in our meeting when we normally hear from the public on matters which are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing. We do have two public hearings this evening. They are item 6A, preliminary 2023-24 budget and preliminary 2023-28 or 2023 property tax levy and item 6B, the Northeast 85th Street Station Area Planned Action Ordinance. On all other matters, please limit your remarks to three minutes and the council will receive up to three comments on each, on each side of each issue. If you are present either in person or virtually and would like to address the council during this items from the audience period, please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star nine to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in the order in which they have signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting but we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please not clap or applaud after a speaker or that you express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome, expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. Because they can be disruptive, 
Signs and placards are also not allowed in council chambers during our meetings, regardless of their content. With that, City Clerk. Our, our first speaker is uh, Richard Goodman, followed by Ingrid Salmon. Thank you. And virtual or in person. Mr. Goodman, welcome. Mayor Sweet, Deputy, Deputy Mayor, Mayor Arnold, Council members, all of you, Mr. Triplett, thank you for the opportunity to, do, to address you this evening. My topic today is the pop-up park at Snyder's Corner in the Bridal Trails neighborhood. My name is Richard Goodman. I'm a retired physician and associate professor emeritus from the University of Washington. My family and I have been Kirkland residents for 35 years. Our 37-year-old son, Paul Goodman, passed away suddenly and unexpectedly in June of this year, leaving behind his beautiful Samoya dog, Sasha, who is a beloved member of our family. This summer, when exploring new places for to, Sasha to play, we discovered Snyder's Corner Pop-Up Park, just six blocks from our home. We were surprised to see that all the dogs already knew Sasha. And moreover, all of the people knew Paul. They were all genuinely saddened to hear of his passing. And in the subsequent week, the Snyder's Corner community put up a bulletin board at the park with a picture memorial to Paul from their own pictures. They even convened an informal service a memorial service at the park for Paul. It was well attended and of course included Sasha and all of her friends. My wife and I were extremely moved. Through this community, we have made many new friends in the neighborhood. Most of them I would never have met without the park. The community is rich with diversity, including ages ranging from 18 to 84. Economic and ethnic diversity, people that I would have ever, ever, otherwise never met. It includes renters and homeowners alike. We've exchanged phone numbers, and we participated in a WhatsApp contact list when, dogs, when our dogs are getting back together. We've socialized together, helped newcomers to the area with local shopping information, veterinary contacts, and medical contacts among a multitude of other needs. This is a truly new community within South Kirkland. It wouldn't exist without this dog park. All of us in the community strive to convince you to establish Snyder's Corner as a permanent year-round dog park. But most importantly, we wish to thank you for what you've already given us. Although we frequent the other three off-leash dog parks in Kirkland, Edith Moulton, Juanita Park, and Jaspers. As you know, they are all located in Northwest Kirkland. Mr. Goodman, I hate to interrupt you, but I have to. Okay. Your time is up. Thank you very much. I would like to thank you all for your attention and this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up. Ingrid Salmon is virtual, and then she'll be followed by Wendy Snyder, who's in on-site. Okay.
Hello. Hello, welcome. Thank you, Mayor Sweet and Kirkland City Council. I'm Ingrid Salmon, and I've been 22 years in the city of Kirkland. Well, technically, I live on Finn Hill, and I'm a member of the Finn Hill Neighborhood Association and the Juanita Neighborhood Association. I'm here today to support active transportation. I live, I try to live an active transportation lifestyle from my perch on Finn Hill. That means walking, busing, and biking. Usually I use a combination of all three to get to where I want to go. That lifestyle is not particularly convenient but it does feel right to me at this point in my life. I want to encourage all the efforts and investments that the city is making to support active transportation. I support, for example, the Transportation Benefit District. Um, I'm quite disappointed to see the delay in the 100th Avenue Northeast project, which is north of Juanita Elementary and south of Juanita Creek along 100th Avenue Northeast. The more information on why it's delayed or how I can help, that would be helpful. It's, that is my children's hometown. It's not lost on me that that's a car strip. Uh, so I wanted to invite any council member to join me on any of my active transportation forays in the city of Kirkland. For example, we can take the 225, the Metro 225 to Totem Lake Mall, or we could take the 255 to downtown Kirkland, or we can even do a bike bus combo to the Kirkland Performance Center on the 230 or the 231, which I did just last Wednesday night. And that is my statement regarding uh, active transportation. I do support the Juanita Public Pathway as part of the Juanita um, uh, Neighborhood Association. But I thank you for your time. And if you want my contact information, I think it's associated with my account here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Salmon. And I think we're waiting for Wendy Snyder. Yes, we have Wendy Snyder, and then she'll be followed by Debbie L Lacey, who's virtual. Welcome. Yes, hi. Uh, thank you for letting me speak with you all today. My name is Wendy Stewart. I am here to talk to you about the Snyder Corner pop-up dog park, but that's just fine. Um, excuse me. Um, I am asking you all to reinstate the pop-up dog park for the winter at Snyder's Corner in South Kirkland. My friends Kim, Barbara, and Barry spoke at the last council meeting. I want to speak on the benefit a local dog park provides to the city. I moved to Kirkland in April for a new job and knew absolutely no one or no businesses in the area. I got an apartment sight unseen just to be close to the office. Shortly after, the Snyder's Corner pop-up dog park opened and my dog Betty and I began walking over almost every day after work and on the weekends. Not only does the dog park provide entertainment for our dogs, but it has allowed me to meet my neighbors, neighbors I have since become friends with. Due to these new relationships, I have gained recommendations and used local businesses, vets, doctors, both dog and human grooming services, that would have been more difficult to find had I not been so quickly connected to my neighbors. I became a part of this community. 
This park brings local businesses such as Grocery Outlet, Downpour Coffee, Bartels, businesses every day. Conversations we've had at the dog park have included many things, including local civic issues. And it's important to stress that the attendees include all ages, ethnicities, and political views. Because of this community grown around a small local dog park in the Bridal Trails area, I am now planning on staying in the city of Kirkland and hopefully buying a home here in the next couple of years. We are willing as a group to provide lighting, covered areas, seating, wood chips, and anything deemed necessary to keep this park open. Most of us are willing to speak, volunteer, or provide funds to help this happen. Local businesses have supported the dog park this summer, including Ace Hardware and Grocery Outlet, by donating supplies, including the hay when the city removed our dog park to help grow the grass back. We know that there are temporary dog parks in Juanita, and sure, that's an option we used it this Saturday, but in a state where the governor is taking measures to reduce the carbon footprint and being more environmentally friendly, I don't understand how us driving 20 minutes each way supports that initiative. We're only asking for a smaller footprint over the window of the previous fencing for the safe and secure socialization of our dogs and ourselves. We would love our temporary dog park back for the winter. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Next up is Debbie, Debbie Lacey, and she's virtual. Good evening. My comment is part for the budget. Should I wait until then? Um, yes, Debbie, you would need to dial in when we do the public hearing. I will do that. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Okay, then we have uh, Ginger Tien, who's on site, followed by uh, Laura Kropp, also on site. Ginger. Mayor Sweet, City Council members, thank you for the chance to address you once again on the subject of Transgender Day of Remembrance. Smithsonian Magazine teaches us that a little over a century ago, well-raised boys were expected to wear frilly white dresses and pink and black patent leather Mary Janes. That's how boys of proper upbringing were raised. That's how FDR was raised, the president who led us through the Depression and through World War II. There are cultures around the world that have far more genders than we do and languages in which there is no gender at all. In my native language of Chinese, everybody in Chinese is a they and a them. And even though there are so many different expressions of gender, it has never stifled the achievements of individuals or of societies. And what that tells me is that over time and over distance, Gender is a fluid thing. It always has been. We try to fit gender within language, and the gender that we wear is a language in and of itself, but it struggles to explain the uniqueness that exists inside each of us. And so we change that language over time. We add color to it. We add sparkle to it. We add accents and inflections. And I understand that that can be very uncomfortable for some people. My parents were afraid when I came out to them. I was afraid of myself as I came out to myself. 
But what I learned is the courage of coming out with support from family, from friends, from the community and the institutions in which we live and exist, that allows each of us to blossom. One of the things I've learned is that as a transgender person, sometimes I burn a little brighter than some, sometimes with colors that don't have names. But in doing so, it's at the same time a burden to shoulder that in the presence of a society that's not ready for it. But I've also seen that being a little bit bigger than life lifts this suffocating wet blanket of conformity that chokes all of us and it creates a little bit of space underneath where everyone can breathe a little more freely and be themselves. So I wanna thank the city of Kirkland for being on this journey to a place where everybody finds acceptance and warmth and a place of belonging. Every journey begins with an intention and a direction and steps. And the families behind you will be with you as we all go there together. Thank you, Ms. Chin. Thank you. We have Laura Krop, followed by uh, Ron Snell. Is Laura in the chambers? Yes. She's remote. Oh. Are you there, Ms. Krop? Yes. Welcome. Hello, can you see me? Welcome. Hi, thank you. Well, that was beautiful. Um, hard to follow that, but a beautiful sentiment. Um, so hello, thank you all for providing the venue for folks like us to speak today. Um, my name is Lara Kropp. Uh, my family and I moved from California to Kirkland back in 2008. And first uh, moved to Juanita, then to downtown central Kirkland, and now we've settled in Rose Hill back in 2013. We've raised three boys here with our youngest, now a junior, at Lake Washington High. So I'm here today to advocate on behalf of the Snyder's Corner Dog Park. You guys might be familiar with that place. Uh, with uh, Sue, our puppy, who is now nine months old, we have been frequent users of the pop-up dog park before its removal last month, going nearly every evening for typically several hours at a time. I've had the pleasure to know many wonderful folks, a few of which uh, you've met. Um, so I've... I'm introverted in nature. Um, I've struggled with that my whole life. Uh, I don't attend many social events and it was further worsened during COVID when I transitioned to working remotely uh, and remain fully remote to this day. And so I cannot say the same for our puppy Sue, who is a social butterfly. But for me throughout my life, I've struggled with maintaining friendships and finding outlets where I can share and participate with the community. Kirkland, one of the reasons uh, we live here, and I love it so much, is that it's known for its community connections and activities, yet it's been very hard for me to engage. So this park has quickly changed that for me. I've developed so many important friendships, and uh, it became an evening outing that I really genuinely looked forward to. You see the same group of folks and pups showing up day after day. Uh, we accept each other. We know each other. We support each other but also our dogs know each other. They know each other. The minute they walk, those dogs run up to the gate and it's so fun to see them get excited and interact with in their own ways. So why not just go to another dog park? Um, we do have uh, Kirkland and neighboring cities that have dog park options. Um, 
but uh, it just isn't the same as Snyder's Corner Park. I think as already mentioned, it's hard to drive kind of an evening traffic to get onto 405 or through downtown Kirkland to schlep to another dog park. So really, I think is critical that each neighborhood needs its own dog park. But um, ultimately, why I'm here today is to really highlight the bigger points that aren't just as easy as going to another dog park. One is being the relationships we humans have built over the summer along with our dogs, but even more importantly, it's the soul and culture we've built at Snyder's Dog Park. What's unique about Kirkland is the neighborhoods. They each have their own soul and vibe and culture, and that same sentiment goes for our dog park. Um, we're very proud of the soul and culture we've built at Snyder's Corner and really gives us a true sense of community. Um, that was our park and it's left a huge hole in our hearts since its closure. So I'm here uh, to ask again today that the city reconsider and work with us to make this a permanent fixture for our community. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ms. Krop. Ron Snell, who is on site. <laughs> Welcome, Mr. Snell. Thank you, Mayor Sweet and members of the City Council. I'm really here to speak at this point in time on something quite simple, and it's a thank you. All of you are probably aware, I know you're aware, that in recent weeks, our State Building Code Commission has passed a landmark uh, decision basically eliminating fossil fuels from new construction of both commercial and residential properties. It really puts the state of Washington in the forefront of addressing climate change in its buildings and will allow our new construction to be much cleaner than our existing infrastructure. While many people participated in that and there was widespread advocacy uh, in favor of it and I'm sure opposed, uh, in fact I read somewhere that f there were 4,600 comments um, issued uh, to the commission, it's a lot of reading. Um, one of the people who was most in instrumental in that sits in here in this council and is Deputy, Arnold, Deputy Mayor Jay Arnold. We wanted to thank him on behalf of people for, uh, uh, people for Climate Change as well as all of us, all of the activists who worked on this uh, for this landmark decision. Thank you very much. Indeed, thank you. I just want to announce that we have had three speakers in support of the Snyder's Dog Park. So we won't be taking any more testimony on that issue. Yeah, who's next? Um, our next speaker is Lisa Berenson. She's virtual. Okay. Followed by Alex Zimmerman, who's on site. Welcome, Ms. Berenson. She come and Sean. Can she see us?
Ms. Barron said you are muted. Okay, let's proceed. We'll try her again in just a minute and we'll go and call up Mr. Zimmerman. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lisa, can you hear us? Ms. Berenson? Ms. Berenson, we're gonna hear the next speaker and maybe you can try and resolve your speaker issues while we do that. Mr. Zimmerman, please. Hi, my name is Alex Zimmerman and I'm president of Stand Up America. Two weeks ago after last meeting, two your employee talked to me and totally cleaned my brain. I feel like as Gestapo, give me a last chance, change my mind and survive. So they told me I'm not respect you. This is absolutely not true. I respect you, I respect you, I respect you, I respect you very much. And I only respect you, I love you. Because you're smarter people in the world. You brain very good. You geniuses, you know what is mean? All you your Lisa, your speaker is working again. C can you mute it? Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Go ahead, Mr. Zimmerman. Yes, your brain very good. You are geniuses. I totally support you, and I totally respect you. And I'm sorry, so I talked about this before, about sign. It's a very stupid idea, you know what this means, because you're absolutely right. We do not need sign here. The room so small, if we need doing something. And if somebody wants to speak, don't bring sign. Go and speak for three minutes. It's very geniuses. You know what this means, what is you talking. So right now, my brain so clean, you know what this means. So I think in your best counsel, what is I know, because I spoke 3,000 times plus, you know what this means, around from Tacoma to Redmond in Everett, and I think in your real geniuses. I will be support you right now, everything what is you doing, because I'm simple man, you know what this means, in my brain right now, totally clean. You're looking like, a, what is this, uh, what is this? Yeah, like a boring again, you know what this means. So please accept everything what is I talking. And look, this 100,000 people who live in Bellevue totally support you because nobody come and talking about sign, you know what this means. What does this mean? This means to 100,000 slaves totally support you. Even they support you, mean you're doing best what is you can and you are best of the best. And I repeat you again, I, I love you, I respect you, because you're smart, you're best of the best. And I will repeat right now this again and again. Next time, what as I come to your meeting, when I stay in life, I'm very old, I will be told you again and again, I respect you, you're very good, you are best, and you are geniuses, because everything what is you doing, this is very good right now, and because my brain right now is totally clean, so all information what is will come from you to my brain make my life very good and very happy right now. Is this exactly what is I talk to you? Please be smart, doing best what is you can. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Zimmerman. 
Okay. Hello. Lisa Go ahead, Lisa. Be followed by Karina O'Malley, who's okay. also virtual. Okay. So this is Lisa Berenson. Sorry about my little glitch there. Um, so basically, I have a couple comments. So when you go back to the budget, um, the one thing I want to bring up is the cost for the health care for um, inmates. Lisa, jail, medical, what? that's going to be part of the public hearing discussion. Okay. So the other thing then is about the housing. Can I talk about that? Yes. Okay. So housing. So I read the letter that um, was sent as a draft to the um, regarding affordable housing and the concerns with Imagine Housing and their requests. And by reading through that, my concern is that um, the money allocated towards for them via grants, number one, is not enough money. Number two, I think that there is probably another organization that could be spending that money more wisely and being uh, held accountable. The other thing too, the fact that there's only four locations in the city of Kirkland that provide affordable housing that totals the 200 and whatever it is, 34 units, that 234 units of affordable housing in a city that is vastly growing and is becoming more and more expensive to live is not enough units. And the fact that it's all being controlled by um, Imagine Housing, which in my mind is not doing a good job. Um, and the 60% area medium income, you're saying it's based on a family of four. Well, what about people who don't have children? What about people like me who have one child? There's just not enough units of affordable housing right now. And also it relates to the new letter that was just submitted where you put certain caps. It was an agreement where you interviewed landlords and tenants well, the moment you issued that letter, you know what my landlord did? Raise my rent by 3% because it was in writing that he was allowed to do it. And I said, well, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And I've been in this location for several years. They know my situation and they still went and raised my rent. There's just not enough affordable housing in Kirkland, period. Thank you, Ms. Berenson. Have we anyone else to speak? Did you say Karina O'Malley? Yeah, Karina O'Malley signed up to speak. Uh, virtually. Welcome, Ms. O'Malley. Hello, my name is Karina O'Malley. I live in Bridal Trails, Kirkland. I wanted to just come tonight to thank the Kirkland City Council King County and Jim Lopez in particular for all of their work on the Health Through Housing Initiative at La Quinta. And I just wanted to uh, remind us that some might wanna spend time imagining the worst case scenarios 
that might possibly happen should some person slip through a screening process and do something terrible while living at the old La Quinta. But I would really rather that we all focus on the worst case scenario that has already happened. In 2019, Sheila Christensen, a woman I knew, died of hypothermia sleeping outside in Kirkland. We all need to apply our greatest urgency in getting people inside as soon as possible. The temperature this weekend will be below freezing again. And my friends are still waiting for a place to live. Thank you. Thank you. Is that it? Sorry. That's everybody I have signed up. For okay. Is there anyone else who wishes to address the council at this time? Seeing none, I will declare this items from the audience period closed. This takes us to item number six, public hearings. Uh, we begin with the preliminary 2023-24 budget and, pre and preliminary 2023-2023 property tax levy uh, and ordinance 4824. This is a public hearing to receive public comments on the preliminary 2023 property tax levy and preliminary 2023-24 budget. I will now open the public hearing. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I just actually, um, before we open the public hearing, I was wondering if we maybe wanted to consider moving the special presentations before the public hearing since we have a family members and folks here who might need to get home. I think that's a really good idea. So maybe close this, do this to the service awards. So I will close the public hearing yes. for now. <laughs> and we will come back to it. So does that bring us to uh, special presentations, right? I'm taking um, special presentation 7A, the service award recognition. Yep. Um, and we just have eight members and their families here tonight. Um, and so if I can introduce uh, our Human Resources Director, Truck Deaver, she'll be making uh, the presentations with the mic. What we're going to have is, uh, these are for folks who have served for the City of Kirkland for 20 years or longer, uh, some of our most amazing employees. We're just grateful to have them. And we'll be introducing them, and they'll be coming forward to meet you, Madam Mayor, uh, up here at the front. And then we're going to suggest a picture of everybody um, by the seal with each member. All right, just testing if this works, and it does. Um, good evening, Madam Mayor, Council Members. Uh, the City of Kirkland would like to recognize employees reaching benchmark service years, and so we proudly honor the following employees for their dedicated service and contributions. Uh, we do have some employees who are here tonight to receive their awards, and we also have some who may be tuning in from home. So I will go ahead and read everyone's names. Um, but to start off with, we'd like to recognize those who've put in 20 years of service. So I'd like to first call up Tracy Harrison. Is Tracy here today? Uh, Tracy is a program coordinator with our Parks and Community Services Department. This way a little bit. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you. Next, I'd like to recognize Stephanie Day, business analyst with our planning and building department. Stephanie, are you here today? Hello. <laughs> Thank you, congratulations. Uh, and next for 20 years, I'd also like to invite uh, Detective David Quiggle up front, uh, a sergeant with our police department. Very nice, thank you. Also to recognize 20 years of service, uh, we, we have uh, Charles Chuck Saunders, who is joining us via Zoom. Uh, Chuck is an IT manager with our, of networks and operations for our information technology department. Um, also recognizing Alan O'Neill, detective with our police department, Collins Clem, senior grounds person, Parks and Communi Community Services, William Barnes, firefighter with our fire department, Matthew Anderson, detective with our police department, Julia Valencia Drake, corporal with our police department, Adam Haas, detective also with our police department, Carol Dean, senior grounds person, Parks and Community Services, and David Nelson, fire captain with our fire department. Thank you to those who put in 20 years. Next, the city of Kirkland would like to recognize those who've put in 25 years of dedicated service. Uh, so we have representing today, we have Troy Kanafla, a Lieutenant of Operations with our police department. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, yeah. I don't recognize him out of uniform. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Lieutenant. Um, also putting in 25 years and unable to join us this evening, Christopher Rogers, a Lieutenant with our fire department, Mark Crickmore, Lieutenant with our fire department, Stephen Brownlee, firefighter with our fire department, Jason Chapel, Captain with our fire department, Margaret Freeman, Battalion Chief with our fire department, and Chris Martin, Captain with the Kirkland Fire Department. So thank you again for those who have put in 25 years of service. Next, we go to three decades. So we have um, here, uh, I, I believe the family of Iris Cabrera Gonzalez is here. Is that correct? Or is Iris here? Okay, if she is not here, then uh, we'll make sure that she gets her award. Um, next, for 30 years, we have our training battalion chief, William Bill Hoover, with our fire department. <laughs> Perfect. Three, two, 
All right. And uh, also happy to introduce you for 30 years of service, Mark Young, our fire marshal with our fire department. And for those who could not be here today, we have Randy Rogers, patrol officer with the police department, Donna Gaw, information systems security officer with their IT department, and Jeffrey Sandine, judicial support associate too with our municipal court. And uh, my apologies going back to um, Iris Cabrera Gonzalez. She is a transportation engineer with our public works department. So thank you to all of those who put in 30 years. And last but not least, a milestone to be proud of. We are celebrating uh, 35 service years. So uh, can I ask if Catherine Coleman is in the audience? <laughs> Catherine, Catherine is a senior development engineer analyst with our public works department. She's been here since 1987. So thank you so much for your service. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much to all our award uh, participants and uh, for being here tonight. And uh, thank you to the council and thank you to the mayor. And of course, to Chris for taking our photography tonight. Well, that was fun. That was. And Bert, you want to quickly do 7B because it's just a short introduction of our two members? Oh, let's do that, yeah. So we'll be a little quicker and a little more brief than, than we had wanted, but... Um, you just tell as, me what to do. Go ahead. <laughs> so as the council knows, uh, we ended very amicably, but sadly a long relationship with Waypoint Consulting, and uh, the city has gone out for new lobbyists, and we are... Uh, very pleased to have uh, Brian McConaughey of BMC Consulting and Brian Enslow of Arbutus Consulting who joined us. They've been now working with our legislative work group for the past three weeks, doing an outstanding job, hitting the ground running, and we wanted to have a chance for them to each say hi to the full council so you could uh, put faces to names and also know that they're going to be setting time up to meet with each of you uh, to get to know you better. But I wanted to let each of them say just a couple words of hello, and then um, if the Legislative work group wants to say anything, I want to offer them the opportunity as well. Uh, so why don't we go with Mr. Enslow first, and then Mr. McConaughey, and then I'll turn it over to Chair Curtis. Great. Um, thank you. I am Brian Enslow at Arbutus Consulting. So if you do see that email in your inbox, I'm not a bot. I'm a real person. Uh, I've been um, a lobbyist for around uh, 14 years, and I started my career in public service 23 years ago. My bio and background is in your packet, so I won't belabor that. So is uh, Mr. McConaughey's. I'm going to say just a couple of things you probably already know. You live in an amazing community. Your staff has tremendous in integrity, and um, you collectively... Um, your collective commitment to public service is evident. 
And I see that, I honor that, and I respect that. And I am so appreciative of the opportunity to, re, uh, to represent you. And I take that responsibility very seriously. With that, I'm going to conclude my remarks. I look forward to getting to know all of you um, at a, at, in a more uh, in-depth as we move forward in this relationship. Thank you very much for your time. Mayor and Council, thank you very much for having us here tonight. My name is Brian McConaughey of BMC Consulting. This is the first time that Brian and I have teamed up to uh, represent a city. Uh, we both have cities in our portfolio, and we felt that the city of Kirkland deserved both of us to be uh, representing you in Olympia. Um, and with the last two or three weeks that we've had to experience Kirkland and the Council and the staff, um, we're, we're glad we have because uh, it's a great city. We're lucky to be here. I do want to highlight, though, that um, we have big shoes to fill. Uh, Mike and Ryard and, and Teresita Torres uh, were uh, phenomenal for the city, and uh, and we look forward to being uh, playing a smaller <laughs> role than they did because they did such a great job. But uh, we look forward to meeting all of you, and uh, again, thank you for the opportunity. Thank, thank you, City Manager, and thank you and welcome, Brian and Brian, Brian Squared, as we they are now known. Um, they have jumped in with both feet. They have already toured the potential Hawk Crossing at 132nd. They're providing expertise and experience on our capital project requests and behavioral health issues. They bring experience and perspective from their work with other cities. They have spent two days with us in legislative coffees. They've learned that we like to talk a lot. And uh, Brian Inslow is kind of like, well, we need to move for along now. So I appreciate that. Um, but this is going to be a great partnership. So we look forward to working with you. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us tonight. OK, so let's go back to the track. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So back to six. Um, Public hearing? Public hearings. And I think I will now reopen the public hearing. Thank you. So this is 6A on the preliminary budget and preliminary property tax levy. And here to give the presentation is our finance and administration director, Michael Olson. Welcome, Michael. Good evening. Thank you, city manager, madam mayor, and uh, council members. Oops back. Just a very um, brief presentation. This is both a uh, public hearing on the 23-24 budget and the property tax levy for 2023. So just a couple of highlights. Uh, the budget was presented to the public and to the council on October 18th and can be found on the city's website under kirklandwa.gov slash budget doc. You'll find three documents, the preliminary budget document, the service packages, which, which are the investments in the community and service for the city in the next two years, and issue papers on a variety of topics. Also, there was uh, the council study session, which discussed the budget at length, and the public hearing and study session on November 1st. For, uh, uh, for a budget, what is a budget? It is a, uh, it is a document that meets program criteria because we apply for the government finance officers association budget award every time we prepare a budget so that we meet the standards uh, so that the budget document is a policy guide a financial plan an operations guide and also a communication tool i would encourage the public to read the budget message 
The budget message is in the beginning of the budget document, talks about the themes and priorities and strategies of the budget, and also the service investments uh, for the next two years. A um, couple highlights of the budget is just over a billion dollars, just under 30% is for the general fund, which covers, which uh, funds the police, fire, um, parks, and uh, support services. Just over, a, just about 25% is for the city's own utilities, water, sewer, service water, and solid waste. And another about 30% is non-operation, which includes the uh, reserves, the capital projects, and debt service for the city. Jumping to the property tax, a few highlights on property tax. This uh, pie chart shows that the city of Kirkland's portion of the property tax is just one piece of about less than a dozen agencies that are getting from the property tax, and Kirkland's portion is just under 13% for 2022. Some background to know, the property tax levy must be established annually, is due to the county by November 30th this year. That's why we're asking the council to pass an ordinance tonight. The preliminary levy consists of the amount that the city received last year, plus the optional 1%, plus new construction, plus prior year levy corrections. The new construction for this levy is just about over $625,000, and we always ask for more because right now we just have the preliminary numbers, and if you ask for less than what you can get, the county gives you only what you ask for. If you ask for more than you can get, the county cuts you off at your statutory maximum. So that's why we ask for more. And then we bring a final levy ordinance back to the council after we get the final numbers from the county assessor. The next few slides show some dollar amounts. This shows what the 1% increase provides to the city for the various portions of the levy. We have four, five different portions, the general fund, street fund, um, parks maintenance levy that was passed by voters in 2002, the streets levy and the parks levy that were passed in 2012, and the fire and EMS levy passed by voters in 2020. The new construction is just over 625,000 and also shows how that's distributed between the, the parts of the levy. And then we double that and just ask for an artificially high amount. So it brings our total request for the property tax to just over $43 million. And here again is a recap of what adds up to that $43 million, which is the number in the ordinance. The preliminary calculation divided by what we're asking for shows a levy rate of just under a dollar per assessed thousand. And I provided a little chart here of showing what the levy rates since annexation have been for the city of Kirkland. Uh, the next steps are to adopt the preliminary levy, pre preliminary levy ordinance following the close of the public hearing, and then we'll bring back the final levy ordinance when it's available from the council, or from this uh, King County. Any questions? Any questions for Michael? Uh, seeing none, I will now call upon any members of the public who have signed up to address the council. Our first sign-in is Debbie Lacey, who's virtual, followed by David Malcolm, who's on-site. Excellent. So let's start with Debbie. Mr. Malcolm, wait just one second. Debbie Lacey is first in line. Good evening. 
Thank you so much. I'll go ahead. Uh, I'm Debbie, Debbie Lacey, a Kirkland resident and speaking tonight in my role with Eastside for All, a local nonprofit advocacy organization. I want to express my appreciation for Kirkland's support for the Kirkland Health and Wellness Fair, which took place on October 8th at Juanita High School. Tonight, you're considering a proposal to include funding for the fair as part of the budget within the Human Services Funds for the next two years. The Health and Wellness Fair was conceived of and designed in the community in large part following the input from community members who participated in the King County Promotoris Network's Latino Latine Community Engagement Initiative to identify top priorities and needs in Kirkland. The top need was more access to free and affordable health care, including vaccines. So addressing that priority, 921 community members attended the fair to receive dental care, health screenings, vaccines, and to connect with nearly two dozen community partners. Another top priority was that the community wanted more opportunities to participate, contribute, and help the Latino community in Kirkland. There were dozens of volunteers at the fair, including youth, parents, promotoris, and other community members from a wide range of backgrounds. There were also many high school students present, giving excellent exposure to ways they can support the community in careers in social services, medical fields, and city government. More broadly, events like this with a vision of rotating leadership and co-planning between various racial and cultural groups in Kirkland is a way to manifest part of the city's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging roadmap. In particular, the goals related to collaborations and partnerships with community-based groups and opportunities for community members to impact civic life in Kirkland. My own organization's Build for Belonging work celebrates community efforts just like this, and we encourage cities across the east side to invest in them. These aren't typical resource, fair, uh, resource fairs and nothing against those, they're much needed, but the Kirkland Health and Wellness Fair is unique in its co-creation with community through all stages of planning and its intercultural focus. Conversations alone don't build bridges across differences. It takes working alongside each other, responding to our community's requests in tangible ways. Thank you for considering. I hope you'll accept the proposal to fund the fair as part of Kirkland's work in partnership with the community. Thank you very much. Thank you, Debbie. Mr. Malcolm. Madam Mayor, Council Members, my name's David Malcolm, uh, resident of Kirkland for a few years, and I want to just say a few words in favor of a, a budget item uh, concerning the uh, uh, staffing for the city sustainability plan. Uh, <clears throat> Kirkland has an impressive sustainability master plan. It puts the, the city in the lead amongst other cities in King County. And uh, uh, this master plan owes much to, to one staff member who has been largely devoted to, to that effort. Uh, this task of, of keeping Kirkland in step with the response to, to climate change will only become more acute and, and demanding in the future. It applies not only to city operations, but also to the entire city. Uh, it's a moving target. Uh, state building codes are changing. The uh, state Was Washington State 
cap and invest program is now being implemented and the uh, King County Climate Collaborative has set specific uh, goals. So this is a, a fast-changing field. Some would describe it as an existential one. And Kirkland should put its, its money where its future, our future, is. Now, while I can understand that the city manager's argument that these issues are ones that cut across all departments, uh, his own job, Mr. Triplett, um, would be made uh, easier if, if one person was responsible for coordinating and leading this important effort. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you, Mr. Malcolm. Is there anyone else who would like to address the council no. with regard to this item? We have Ron Snell signed up, followed by Jean Large, and then Lisa Berenson is virtual. Excellent. Mr. Snell. Uh, Mayor Sweet, members of the council, um, I wanted to speak to you today again about the implementation of the Sustainability Master Plan. I'll be speaking today on behalf of uh, PCA Kirkland. Um, first of all, we want to recognize that significant investments are being made, have been made by the city uh, on this issue, and we also recognize that significant investments are proposed in the council budget. Um, the implementation of the current uh, investments for the um, Energy Smart Program is significant, and it's certainly a step in the right direction. We also recognize that there's at least $300,000 that are focused for expanding implementation of the Sustainability Master Plan around Energy Smart Program and additional administrative tasks such as grant writing. But we are concerned that uh, there are some missing pieces and that um, things are going to um, get overlooked if we don't have additional staffing. What we're particularly concerned about is there is not a single person who is responsible for the oversight and focus of key activities in the Sustainability Master Plan. And I need to talk a little bit about the structure of the Sustainability Master Plan and explain what's missing is really two kinds of focus areas in the Sustainability Master Plan. Two of the areas, energy supply and emissions, and buildings and infrastructure, essentially represent entirely new activities that the city signed up for when they approved the Sustainability Master Plan. There is no staffing for those, and there is no ongoing responsibility by any department. All of the other focus groups including land use and transportation, which also has significant uh, greenhouse gas reduction uh, opportunities, do have significant staff that can work on these tasks. So I want to just use my time very briefly to pick out a couple of the key tasks to give you a flavor for how much work is we think is involved and why it's important to have somebody driving particularly these two tasks that nobody owns right now. One is, um, if we look under uh, energy supply and emissions, we are looking at um, one of the biggest issues to, uh, that the um, cities have to address is how are we going to get charging stations in the hands of renters? 
it's easy enough for me as a building owner to charge it, but not for renters. Some experts argue this is the single biggest barrier to successful implementation of electrification of transportation um, um, uh, in, the whole, in the whole situation, and we do not have anyone re directly responsible for that task. Um, I see I'm running out of time. I will try and send you other my comments, but there's two, two questions. We really need to have somebody responsible for the entire uh, all of these missing pieces. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Snow. Ms. Large. Thank you. My name is Jean Large. Um, Mayor Sweet and council members, thank you for having us here. Um, as a citizen of the city of Kirkland, uh, I'm very concerned about our shared responsibilities <clears throat> to have a plan and to take actions that will prevent and address the impacts of climate change. I'm very pleased to witness that the city had responses to the climate change and your actions regarding, <clears throat> regarding implementation of the sustainability master plan. Thank you very much for the proposed allocations in the 2023 budget for the heat pump conversion program and for the east side energy efficient programs expansion. I encourage you, following up on what has already been said, to include in the budget sufficient funds for staffing the implementation of the sustainability master plan and providing guidance and support to Kirkland citizens. I'm sure the challenges that we will face in 2023 will be more than we currently know about. We must be ready to address these issues and in order to have a safe future for the residents and the businesses of our great city. Thank you. Thank you. Is Ms. Berenson back on or? I'm here. Uh, welcome back. Okay, so um, I wanted to comment about a, a couple things. So first of all, um, as far as the budget, um, the jail medical costs, um, there needs to be accountability for that. I have actually designed um, high security, medium security, correctional facilities as an architect designer. And I have to tell you that these inmates get better health care than the average public does. It's absolutely disgusting, the level of health care that they get for free or that's subsidized compared to what the public gets. And to keep dumping money uh, to these inmates to get health care without addressing what's going on in the public. There needs to be some kind of, some type of accountability as to how much money they're getting and how is it actually being used and is it being used appropriately and uh, sufficient, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just not being wasteful with all that, with all that money for their healthcare. 
The other thing is that um, with the sustainability master plan, I agree with the previous um, panel, uh, the previous comments that were given, definitely need a whole new staff department to implement the sustainability master plan. I also agree with the challenge for charging stations. Um, also, more incentives for people to be able to afford and buy all electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles. Um, and the other comment I wanna make about the climate um, and one of the initiatives is preserving open green space. These developers are hacking down trees at an enormous rate. And the trees, based on you know, what they're required to do, the type of trees, the amount of trees um, that they are actually putting back in place is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. It does nothing to replace all the trees that they are clear cutting, wiping out, to build. There needs to be some kind of accountability. There needs to be a change in the amount of these trees that are being cut down. Last comment. I know everybody is concerned that new construction, residential, no gas, no gas fireplaces, no gas appliances. Ms. Um, Ms. Sorry, I just want to say I totally disagree with no gas in residential. Multifamily, okay. get it. All right, Ms. Berenson, I'm going to ask that if you have additional comments, we are happy to receive those by email. Okay. Um, but your time is up this evening. Thank, Thank you. you. Anya, is there anyone else? Is there anyone else who would like to address the council at this time? In which case, I will declare the public comment portion of this hearing closed. Uh, council will consider all public comments received on this issue, including those submitted in writing. I would now entertain a motion to adopt Ordinance 4824, establishing the amount of property taxes to be levied for the year 2023. So moved. Second. It's been moved by Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Council Member Curtis. Discussion? Clerk, we call the roll. Councilmember Nixon? Yes. Councilmember Black? Yes. Councilmember Curtis? Yes. Councilmember Falcone? Yes. Councilmember Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor Sweet? Yes. Motion carries. Thank you. This takes us to item B, the 85th. Northeast 85th Street Station Area Planned Action Ordinance. This is a public hearing to receive public comments on the Northeast 85th Street Station Area Planned Action Ordinance. I will now open the public hearing. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. To give a brief uh, background on this topic before the public hearing, we have our Planning and Building Director, Adam Weinstein, and our Deputy Planning and Building Director, Allison Zyke, to make the presentation. Welcome. 
Thank you and good evening, Mayor Sweet, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold and council members. We're happy to be here with you tonight to give a brief presentation on the planned action ordinance for the station area plan, uh, followed by public testimony. So tonight we have a quick presentation, six slides. Um, we'll accept uh, testimony from the public. We are not requesting action from council tonight. We plan on bringing back the final um, ordinance for adoption when we bring you the form-based code for phase two. Uh, tonight with us to help answer any questions from council, uh, we have uh, Lisa Greeter, who is our consultant from Burke, who led the EIS effort. So she's been working with us for the last couple of years on this project um, and helped author the planned action ordinance. We also have our transportation he team here. Um, so Joel Funt and Rochelle Starrett are here tonight to answer any transportation related questions. So just a little bit of project background for you related to the station area plan and how it relates to the planned action ordinance. Um, in October 2021, uh, the city issued a fiscal impacts and community benefits analysis. That study developed a list of infrastructure projects that would be required to support future growth in the station area at the maximum capacity that was adopted in the station area plan. The council adopted that stationary plan and related goals and policies in June of this year. Um, and then lastly, council adopted a planned action ordinance for a portion of the station area. So for the Lee Johnson site and the future Google office campus uh, back in September. A lot of what we're going to talk about in the next couple of slides, we also covered as it related to the Google planned action ordinance, but I'm going to do a quick review. Um, and so in terms of the environmental review that supports this planned action ordinance, the city did issue a final supplemental environmental impact statement or FSEIS in December of last year. We also issued uh, an addendum to that FSEIS in June of this year that included some supplemental analysis, a lot of it around transportation and also referenced um, the phase one code amendments. Um, the, the process that we've followed here is consistent with, with other environmental review processes the city's completed um, and similar to what we did for Kirkland Urban where there is a planned action ordinance adopted. Specific to the planned action ordinance, a little bit about the, that. Um, so this planned action ordinance will be the culmination and kind of the final action um, in environmental review for the station area plan. The planned action ordinance itself doesn't contain any environmental analysis, but it references the environmental analysis in that FSEIS. The planned action ordinance will include specific mitigation measures for future development. Um, and a lot of that is by referencing codes that we plan to adopt with phase two and also codes adopted in phase one that help mitigate some of the identified significant impacts. It'll also reference the infrastructure list. So for those required projects to support future growth um, and why we're doing a planned action ordinance, it really helps streamline um, future development projects by providing a lot of certainty for both the development community and the city about what mitigation will receive with that future growth. Um, we can adjust um, some of the land use composition within the station area, but we'll keep track of the maximum trips. And so the planned ordinance uh, the planned action ordinance, excuse me, does set that maximum trip threshold. Um, and then also, just because we'd be adopting a planned action ordinance doesn't mean there's not some review in the future um, for those projects. So there'll still, still be a consistency review 
uh, for any project that gets submitted to make sure that it's falling under the thresholds that the, are set in the planned action ordinance. And um, as we've laid out here, we do include that consistency review process in the planned action ordinance. Um, some of the other contents of the planned action ordinance include designating the area that it covers. It does e exempt the area outlined in red here um, and that's the Lee Johnson site that's covered under the previous adopted planned action ordinance. Uh, the planned action ordinance does set maximum levels of new land uses, maximum levels of trips, and then again, it references specific mitigation measures um, largely by referencing adopted code and then also uh, required infrastructure improvements with future growth. We also have provisions in there that will um, guide how we monitor and review development, so how we track how close we're getting to those trip thresholds and the land use uh, capacity numbers that we set in the ordinance. Uh, specific to transportation, just wanted to go into slightly more detail. I'm gonna cover this high level, um, and then we have Joel and crew on the line if you have questions. Um, so as I've mentioned a couple times, we do have a list of infrastructure projects, including transportation improvements that would be needed in the future to support growth in the station area. Those projects with the annual comp plan amendments you'll be hearing about, uh, you received a briefing on the consent agenda tonight and then we'll bring that to you for adoption in December. Um, that update does include uh, the inclusion of those projects and that list can be adjusted. So. If we need to adjust the timing of any required projects based on what's actually happening in the station area in the future, we can do that. Um, as we've talked about, that consistency review will, will allow us to make sure that with future development projects, we're getting the appropriate mitigation uh, for those um, projects. And then also, um, we'll have projects report out some of their mode share to help us track uh, how we're doing on those trip thresholds set in the planned action ordinance. With that, um, I would hand it back to you, Madam Mayor, and we are happy to take any questions from Council. Thank you. Council, any questions for the team? Seeing none, um, I will now call upon any members of the public who have signed up to address the Council. Anya? We have Lisa McConnell on site. And that's all we have signed up. All right, thank you. Welcome, Lisa. Good evening. I'm here tonight to address the urban flex zone and the neighborhood mixed use zones west of I-405 and the 85th Street station area plan as the council considers phase two codes. In tonight's packet, it envisions this area as a thriving transit-oriented new walkable district. And it is with this in mind that I am speaking to you tonight. My first request is that council maintains the maximum height, 35 feet ABE, for the LIT zones along the Cross Kirkland Corridor, see chapter 40 of the zoning code. This will keep the development along the corridor consistent and pedestrian oriented as envisioned in the CKC master plan. Additionally, the current zoning code for the CKC is found in zoning code 115.24 for LIT and PLA 5 zoning and use. I request the properties that abut the CKC not have the CKC as the rear of the property, but instead consider it as additional frontage to the property and subsequently treat the CKC as the multimodal car-free transportation element that it is, not as a back alley. 
That is the intention of the current zoning code 115.24. Specifically, I'd like to refer you to three items in this code, and I request that they be maintained. 2A, required yards. The minimum required yard is 10 feet as measured from the common property line with the corridor. 3A, site design. Development adjoining the corridor shall be designed to complement the public nature of the corridor through the following site design and pedestrian improvements, and it goes through a list of those. And finally, 3B4, building facades facing the corridor should not exceed 120 feet without vertical definitions. This should be maintained. The proposed form-based code has building facades at 160 feet. As you consider Chapter 57 of the form-based code for street types, you see green mid-block connections. These provide important network connections for cyclists and pedestrians. In addition, they can also include on-site green stormwater infrastructure as part of their design. In the area west of the CKC and I-405, the urban flex zone, please consider adding green street end connections from the CKC to streets in this area to enhance the multimodal use not only within the station area, but to the station area from other parts of Kirkland and the CKC. And a final comment on the incentive zoning allowance. This sets forth an exchange rate for each unit of community benefit provided, please consider significant contributions to completing projects in Vision Zero, Safe School Routes, the Active Transportation Plan, TBD priority projects, or transit projects such as queue jumps or bus only lanes as a community benefit. To be clear, this is in addition to, not instead of, affordable housing amenities. Thank you for your time and consideration. Thank you, Ms. McConnell. Is there anyone else who wishes to address the council at this time? Seeing none, um, I will declare this public comment portion of the hearing closed. Council will consider all public comments received on this issue, including those submitted in writing. With that, that will take us to item eight, the consent calendar. Before we have a motion, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold to give us an audit of the accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $3,819,938.10 and bills in the amount of $5,605,916.52. Thank you very much. Can I get a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Second. Been moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Curtis to accept the consent calendar. Any discussion? No. Councilmember Curtis. I would just to like to make a comment. Um, I want to draw everybody's attention to item 8F, acceptance of the 108th Avenue Northeast Water and Sewer Replacement Project. There was a cost savings of $2.3 million. That's money that can go funneled back into important infrastructure projects. And I just want to thank the contractor and staff for looking for more efficient ways uh, and cost-saving way, saving ways to uh, complete that project. So thank you. Thank you for that comment. Further discussion? Question is on the motion to approve the consent calendar. Are there ordinances on it? Yes. Um, Clerk, will you please? Uh, the motion was made by Council Member Falcone, seconded by Council Member Curtis. Uh, Clerk, will you please call the roll? Council Member Nixon? Yes. Council Member Black? Yes. Council Member Curtis? Yes. Council Member Falcone? Yes. Council Member Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor Sweet? Yes, the motion carries. This takes us to item nine, our business agenda. 
Item A, the 2023-2024 preliminary budget. How many more times do I have to say that tonight? <laughs> it's one more meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Madam Mayor, what we're going to do tonight, uh, Michael Olson, our Finance and Administration Director, is going to take us through a series of budget amendments. And what we'll be looking for is... Should the council want a motion and then discussion and each of these amendments can themselves be amended. So mm -hmm. we have staff available to answer any questions you might have like on each of the amendments or the programs. And so we look forward to the conversation. Thank you, city manager. Um, good evening again, mayor, deputy mayor and council members. Um, this is a continuation of the discussion that happened in the study session and just a uh, primarily going through the four amendments that were presented at that time and receiving council feedback and uh, decisions on these. I'll take them one at a time. The first one is amendment one that was presented funding all of the listed items uh, below except for the fire station 27 refurbishment, which will be brought forward in an update to the 2328 CIP when it's ready to be uh, <clears throat> decided what to do with it. Can we just start off with a motion for Amendment 1? So moved. Second. Second. Moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Pascal. Discussion? Councilmember Falcone? Yes, thank you. Um, thank you, City Manager. Thank you, Michael. I mean, this is um, a lot of work you had. We gave you a lot of feedback, and you did a fantastic job of finding funding for the things that we wanted to prioritize. So thank you for that. Um, I do have a question, um, City Manager, per your recommendation on how to handle the funding request for the health fair of $40,000 per year. Um, can you just explain the, the two options a little bit if we were to amend Amendment 1, if we were to select that first option that you proposed? Uh, where would we get that money? Can you just explain where the money would come from for those two options? Yeah, thank you. So, you may have seen I just uh, sent out a, an email to the council suggesting two ways that the health fair might be addressed. So the health fair request came to us after the Human Services Commission first and second grant discussions had happened. Um, we've got Lynn Swagstra on the line who can speak to this. Had it been submitted, it actually would have been scored really high and it would have been an option A or B item. So it would have been ranked among uh, far higher than some of the things that are currently on the list. So my suggestion, there's two ways that one could consider doing this. One would be simply to add an additional 40,000 per year, 80,000 total. Um, if you did that, it would come out of the totals that you've been running. So it either eat into the remaining 1% general fund contingency, or you could not do something later on the list as a way to do that. So option one would be to add 80,000 to the um, human services grant funding request, the 385. Um, the second option would be to leave that 385 as is and just basically direct us to take the last 40,000 per year off that list as the lowest priority items. And if you wanted to do that, I gave the list of what those last four items are. So, and again, happy to speak to any of those individual items if Council has questions about them. There's also the option of us funding it through Council contingency. That is true. Um, you could do that next year in our council contingency, or you could do it Both. essentially this year, although we refill the council contingency in the budget. So if you spend it this year, we, we would add it back next year. So. <laughs> what was that? 
What's the current balance of the council contingency? I believe it's $250,000, <laughs> less $37. Well, it resets to two fifty, but I think it's about 130000 is my recollection, but Mr. Olson might know. Off the top of my head, but I, I thought it was slightly over 200000 The council hasn't spent very much from it oh, in this last year and a half. Park, Park Lane study. Is that where we... Question, Madam Mayor? <clears throat> Does the draft budget assume that any of that existing 2022 council contingency is carried over, or does it just vaporize at the end of the year and, and then it, it, it just isn't there anymore? It assumes it's carried over. It's just kind of filled up again, okay. filling up the tank. So, so whatever the gap is, we take it back up to 250. So if it's at zero, it's a full 250. If there's 200,000 left, we add 50. Right. Well, Madam Mayor, I, I would suggest that we use the money that we have in the current council contingency to fund that, um, and and uh, because it just disappears otherwise. So that seems like a fine thing to do. Excellent. <laughs> uh, motion is on the floor, but made by Councilmember Nixon, seconded by Councilmember Curtis, to use council contingency to pay both years. I believe that was. That's an amendment. So. Did I say it was an amendment? Yeah, so, so then, so, so. We haven't got a motion on, <coughs> we do. I'm sorry. I, I am not a parliamentarian, but the, <laughs> the amendment here is for the next year's budget. So you might want to do this as a separate item after. Um, Thank you for that. Well, yeah. Madam Mayor, mm -hmm. so did we already have a motion on the floor for amendment one? We did, okay. We so it's out of order. We yes. Can do it. Okay, yeah. so we can do so it. I withdraw that, we do it later. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, the question then is, is there further discussion? Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. One quick point of um, clarification, since we have this on our screen as proposed expenditures, and it does include the Fire Station 27 refurbishment, the motion on the floor is this list of expenditures less the Fire Station 27 refurbishment. Is that everyone's understanding? Correct. The intent was that the line that said, if needed, add in the 2023-2028 CAP update, which okay. would be next June. Yeah, so. Okay. Just want to make sure that, that was clear to everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Falcon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So I just want to make sure we're clear about the proposed next motion. We may be talking about after this in case there's something else you want to do on this motion. Um, are there implications that, you know, I'm just trying to think through like um, what it means to have it out of uh, council contingency funds as far as longevity of the recurrence of the, of the um, health and wellness fair. And is your intention to ask for two years worth in a motion later or just one year? If I may, Madam Mayor, uh, two years, and then my assumption would be that this program would be included in the Human Services Commission recommendations going forward for thereafter. Okay, great. Thank you. I just want to make sure we're signaling the importance of this as an ongoing funded project. Thank you. Great. Thank you. All right. The question is on the motion uh, made by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Pascal, to adopt Amendment 1. And this is... Uh, a voice vote, right? Uh, all those in favor, please signify by, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? The motion carries. Thank you. Right along. <clears throat> Moving on to Amendment 2, items under discussion, um, the special events, the continuation of the teens program, and the parks planning support. I'll move that, Amendment 2. Second. It's been moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember 
Curtis. Uh, discussion? Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I think I just, parks, I think, are extremely important, and we have a lot of, I think, backlog of, of things that we want to be doing. And we've seen some of the cool stuff that we've um, initiated over COVID that we really would like to try to keep up to some degree. Um, I've seen the real benefits, and I see this continues to uh, support those things. Um, I will speak to uh, the parks planning support. Um, that was something that I had I had raised earlier, and I really see see this going back to some of the comments that we heard tonight about dog parks. We aren't advancing some of the dog parks because we don't have the resources to plan and push them forward. This is kind of a stopgap measure until we get past the the parks levy, and so we don't lose momentum. That we don't have a a year where we're not moving parks projects forward, right? Because we're putting all our resources into the levy, and I see this as just it's a it's a it's something that is needed. I I worry that if we don't include that in this amendment, um, that that we basically lose ground over the next couple of years and then have to remake that up uh, to kind of get things going again. So um, there's a lot, there's a lot, um, I think, that that planning support uh, position can really, really help with that we so, solely need. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. And um, with all due respect to Councilmember Pascal's um, advocacy for the parks planning support, I'd like to um, move an amendment to the amendment that removes that item. Uh, we have amendment four coming up uh, that is, in my mind, a requirement uh, for because of the increase in jail medical costs. I'm concerned on how much we are eating into our general fund uh, set aside. So I'd like to propose that the parks planning support um, be removed from this amendment. Sarah, second. Amendment fails for lack of a second. Question is on the motion. Is there any further discussion? Question is on the motion to adopt Amendment Two, moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Curtis. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed. Motion carries. Thank you. Moving to Amendment 3, which was discussed earlier, but asking for <clears throat> council direction. Uh, Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, since our practice is to only make positive motions and not negative motions, I do not intend to make a motion to approve Amendment 3. But I would like to make it clear that this does not mean that we're not supportive of the idea. It's just that we want more information and want to make sure that the staff understands that we would like to continue pursuing that. Thank you. Correct. Thank you. And did we want to go back to that original? We want to get through the amendments before you go back to. Okay. So the the Katie kiosk issue will be referred to economic development for review. Thank you. And amendment four, jail medical costs increase. 
Madam Mayor, I'd like to move Amendment 4. Second. Moved by Councilor Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Councilmember Black to adopt Amendment 4. Discussion? Question is on the motion to adopt Amendment 4. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? The motion carries. Thank you for this feedback. Thank you. Oh, yes. Councilmember Nixon. Yes, and I'd like to make that uh, separate motion. It's not really an amendment to next year's budget, mm -hmm. which is to um, expend uh, $40,000 in both 2023 and 2024 from the 2022 council contingency uh, for the, what do we call this thing officially? Health mm -hmm. fair? And health fair. Okay, health fair. And uh, uh, that's it. Second. So, so Madam Mayor, just so under the, the rules of the council, when you use council contingency, it's actually a motion to bring back a fiscal note to <clears throat> that expenditure. So just if you might make a slight modification, that would return to the next council meeting with a fiscal note authorizing that expenditure. So I would ask you to ask the question as to whether we can waive that. But I guess we really don't need to waive it because we do have one more meeting. Before yep, the we do have one more. Yes, you can suspend council rules and, and not have that requirement. I move that we suspend the council rules in order to consider the preceding motion. Second. Okay, we've got two motions going here. You can do that with suspending the rules? I believe so. Okay. Uh, I'll, we'll vote on the suspending the rules. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Motion's approved. Motion, then we'll act on the first motion. Uh, moved by Council Member Nixon, seconded by Council Member Falcone to uh, use 2022 uh, special or funds. Council special projects. Thank you. Council special project funds uh, to cover the promontories event in the next two years. Very clever of us. Thank you all. Oh, we need to vote on it. Oh, Sorry. It. <laughs> it's not even 10 o'clock. Um, all those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Motion carries. And then I have a comment. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, uh, Madam Mayor. Um, City Manager, we did receive testimony um, advocating for increased staffing in uh, sustainability measures. So I'm hoping that next meeting we can address their concerns, how we are staffing the st sustainability master plan and our steps going forward. Okay. Where does that take us? Are you done with us? Thank you. Thank you for all this direction. And all of these decisions will be included in the final uh, budget uh, ordinance that will be brought back to council on December 13th. Thank you very much, Michael. Now, item B, the potential 2023 parks ballot measure feasibility study update and site focus. So just, Madam Mayor, this might be a little bit lengthy. I don't know if the council wants to take their break now. Yes, they do. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's come on back at uh, 9.33. We are back in session following a short break. And we are at item B, the potential 2023 20, parks 
ballot measure, feasibility study update, and uh, site focus. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. We wanted to check in with the council after the initial round of PFEC discussions on sites. We felt there were some important decisions to be made, and we're looking for council's uh, comment and uh, potentially concurrence. I'm here to walk you through the presentations. Our Parks and Community Service Director, Lynn Zwakstra, and our Planning and Development Manager, Mary Gardaki, and our Management Analyst, Hillary De La Cruz, who is supporting the PFEC process. Uh, Lynn. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and City Council. We have 20, 25 slides to present this evening on the Recreation and Aquatic Center Feasibility Study, which should take about 15 minutes. I'll provide a quick review of the study scope, then Mary Gardaki will show you key summary slides of the OPSIS presentation. Hilary De La Cruz will then summarize the PFEC input received and seek your feedback on staff's recommendation. When we embarked, embarked upon the ballot measure exploratory process, we knew that aquatics and recreation centers would be considered based upon council's previous direction. Uh, because of the complex nature of these facilities, we need consultants to do the analysis, develop concept plans, and provide costing. Opsis Architecture was selected as the city's consultants, and the scope of work specified the development of three concept plans for medium and large aquatics and recreation facilities. An additional item in the scope of work was to create two different concepts for a potential redevelopment of Peter Kirk Park. Four different sites were offered um, by the city for analysis by OPSIS. Houghton Park and Ride, which the city intends to acquire with funds included in the preliminary 23-24 budget. North Kirkland Community Center and Park. Peter Kirk Community Center and Park and Winita Beach Park. These four sites were chosen because they are publicly owned or soon to be publicly owned and are spaces that are large enough uh, for development of facilities. Also, they are in different areas of the city they're located close to current or future public transportation and they are easy to access. This work is to be completed by early 2023, at which time the concept plans developed will be used during the PFIC input process and shared with city council. They could also be used for further community engagement in the spring of 2023. With the selection of facility locations and rough size and scope, OPSIS will proceed with development of the concept plans. That will include identification of facility spaces, features, and sizes, renderings of concept designs, and full capital and operational costing. I do want to note that these are still concepts. Actual facility design would not occur until after a successful ballot measure. So staff are seeking council's feedback or concurrence with the staff recommendation to focus continued consultant work on the North Kirkland Community Center and, and Houghton, Park, Houghton Park and Ride sites. And now here's Mary to uh, run you through some of the OPSIS slides. Thank you, Lynn. So as this slide depicts, on October 27th, OPSIS Architecture did give a presentation to the PFEC, and this is the meeting agenda for that evening. It covered six main areas. Uh, facility guiding principles, market analysis, facility program spaces from large to medium. And then the four areas, four, five, and six is what I'll focus on tonight, which are the potential site and site evaluation criteria, the site analysis and test fit diagrams and the evaluation of those, 
and then the site cost and evaluation and the ultimate conclusion that they came up with. So to talk about this, we wanna look at what the facility program spaces, how they were categorized and how we were looking at this. So to describe the three areas, we were using the terms large, medium, large, and medium. And within each of those, you're going to see four common elements, recreation space, aquatic space, community space, and support space. So for the large, we have about 105,000 square foot facility. It would focus on recreation and aquatics. And the types of spaces within those four categories would be for recreation, a gymnasium or fitness and weights. Aquatic space would be an indoor rec pool or lap pool. Community space, such as classrooms, child watch, and support space, admin, support staff, lockers, storage, things like that. As you look across the three, you're going to see some commonalities between those, but then you're going to see some switching out. And this is to accommodate the spaces. So when we go into medium and large, you still see a gymnasium, but you're seeing an indoor playground as an opportunity. Um, you still see an indoor rec pool. Community spaces have classrooms uh, or more type community type rooms. And again, the similar support space. Lastly, in medium comes in at 45,000 square, square feet. And that actually focuses on community and aquatics. So again, recreation is there with a fitness and weights, aquatic space and outdoor rec pool perhaps, community space, classrooms, uh, a more uh, look at maker spaces such as music room or woodworking, senior and teen space and cultural space. And again, rounding out with a support space in the end. All of the sites, the four sites that Lynn mentioned, uh, went through a site evaluation criteria filter. And I'm going to walk through these criteria very quickly. Um, we looked at development capacity, and that means we're looking at, does it accommodate the program space needs? Uh, does the site accommodate the parking requirements? Um, will it enhance the park amenities they experience at the site? And is the most optimal and effective use of the site? Economic viability, does the site as, as proposed, does it have cost recovery potential? Is there prominent frontage or proximity to compatible amenities? And is there also partnership potential? Does the site provide stewardship of funding? So site development costs are one of those things that we're gonna look into as we look at the sites, but um, that's one of the big considerations of whether the on-site or off-site improvements have a significant cost um, and such things as challenging site conditions like soils or topography, land acquisition, if applicable, um, project development costs and value-added design. The uh, other two criteria is well, there's three, but we'll talk about the two here that are on this slide. The supports diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So again, balanced and complementary service, services to all, preserves and enhances outdoor recreation, uh, and provides access to a variety of means to get there, a variety of transportation modes. And then we looked at regulatory approval. We want to avoid wetlands, streams, steep slope, and really are trying to strive for no lengthy permit or approval process. 
one of the last criteria is the potential community support. And this criteria was, is actually something not evaluated by the consultants, but rather was something we took to PFAC to get their input and insight into the potential for support for these sites. So now I'll go into the site analysis and the test fit diagrams. And so what these, these look like, they're not um, concept plans. They are test fits and diagrams to see what can actually fit on the site based on those programming ideas that we had in the large, medium, large, and medium. So for Houghton, two sizes were explored, the large and the medium, the large at 105,000 square feet as two levels, and the medium at 45,000 square feet, and again, two levels. The one on the left, the large, has an indoor aquatics component, and the medium on the right actually has the, the aquatic component on the outdoor, is an outdoor pool. So then we filter it through that criteria that I spent a little time going over. And so you'll see those on the left listed, the development capacity, economic viability, stewardship of funding, supports DEI, and a regulatory approval. And then they are all categorized or, or evaluated, giving a score of four, three, two, or one. Four being an excellent, three being good, two being fair, and one being poor. So we look through all those. And as you can see, the way that Houghton Park and Ride looked, uh, ended up being evaluated, the larger the facility actually did fare, fare very well and, and they actually scored excellent in all those categories. The medium facility did fairly well, um, but not, not as good as the, uh, the larger facility. North Kirkland Community Center and Park. So we have two layout options for this site as well a large, again, 105,000 square feet. And you can see the layout there with underground parking, uh, three levels to have a large facility there. Uh, it has the aquatics component. Um, it does look like it's on the outside, but that's actually an indoor component for that site. And then a medium large, again, 70,000 square feet. This too would have an underground parking of, but only two levels rather than three and a smaller uh, footprint for the recreation and aquatics component. The, then we filtered it again through the site criteria. And as you can see, the, uh, the large facility at North Kirkland didn't fare as well. And as you can see, there's a, a lot more fare rather, and uh, only one good and several fare for that size, for that site. And then uh, medium and large did a little bit better. Um, so we, we'll, we we take that into consideration and I'll share that with you at the end. And then Peter Kirk Community Center and Park, we had two layout options for that. We had the large recreation aquatic center, again, the 125,000 square feet. This was uh, positioned along Central Way with an indoor aquatic center and um, two levels of underground parking. One of, the, one of the constraints definitely of this site is that is being built on a uh, floodplain. Um, and so we would have to mitigate that. There's also some opportunity on that site to make some development uh, 
redevelopment of the park site itself, such as including a multi-use field and um, re relocating the tennis court, maybe adding some pickleball. Um, and then on the medium side, we actually found a way to uh, take advantage of the existing site um, where the pool is now. And uh, basically you would demolish the, the two, the K-Tub and the, um, uh, the senior center, the PK, and you would incorporate that into the community center. And then by placing it on that Southern uh, area, you have this uh, alignment of community buildings that are faced, that are along Kirkland Avenue. And then that uh, opens up the park for some redevelopment, again, with the multi-use field and possibly an opportunity for relocating the pool um, outdoors, another outdoor pool, but adding a, a spray pad and possibly some outdoor showers with the terrace. And then we again filter through the criteria and um, the sites did okay. Uh, the large site uh, didn't really fare as well as the medium site. And uh, again, we're gonna total these scores and see how they compare overall. Juanita Beach Park had uh, two layout options. We again looked at the large aquatics, uh, recreation aquatics, and then a medium. And um, so one of the key uh, components we need to look at when we're looking at this site, which made it a little more troubling, is the proximity to Juanita Creek and the required uh, setback that is needed. So you basically lose a lot of development uh, capability of the site based on that setback. The site also has um, a lot of uh, potential uh, liquefaction uh, factor there that um, would make the soils difficult to work with, not insurmountable, but would make it very expensive. Um, but again, you see the, the types of fits that can fit on these sites, the large, again, this would still require um, underground parking of two levels. Uh, and then the medium one, we would be able to accommodate all surface parking with that size. And you would see here uh, again with the outdoor pool as the supplement for the aquatics for the medium at uh, Juanita Beach. We filter again through the site criteria. And unfortunately, both of these sites did not fare very well. And I think primarily that you're gonna see where that is, is um, its location and some of the site constraints that were really uh, sh showing up as we went through this process. So we took all of those sites. So you basically saw you have eight different options of two at each of those four sites. And we ran through some costing. And so each of these um, we, we have on the screen here, we're showing a total construction cost. And that is comprised of the site costs, the building cost and the parking cost. And then we add another 30% for soft cost, which is design and permitting and other uh, uh, impacts that have on the development of the site. And we give a range for the total cost for those sites. So as you can see, uh, the, the larger sites um, obviously are gonna cost a little bit more, 
but the sites that are also have much more uh, site constraints and issues with them, you're seeing an even higher cost to accommodate and mitigate some of those site conditions that we, we experienced as we went through the site criteria. So the larger, the, the one that would, as you can look at this, the, the most expensive actually is the large um, at North Kirkland and at Peter Kirk um, and at Juanita Beach. So where you can see some economics of scale is with the, the first one. Can we go back one slide? Uh, which is the Houghton Park and Ride. So you're still getting a large facility with one of the, the lesser, lesser cost ranges. So we put all these together and uh, we totaled all those scores from the site criteria and three sites surfaced. That was the large at Houghton Park and Ride at 65, uh, the medium large at uh, North Kirkland at 56, and the Peter Kirk site at 66 for the medium. So overall, these are the three sites that came to the surface as being the most uh, feasible and preferred. And the Houghton Park and Ride, you can see, are uh, all excellent in their their categories, the North Kirkland for the medium large has a couple of goods, but primarily excellent. And then Peter Kirk had uh, several excellent and one good. So we shared this with the PFAC uh, group and we asked for their feedback. And I'd like to turn this now over to Hillary who can share the results of that conversation. Thanks, Mary. Go. Thank you. Um, so following the OPSIS presentation, PFAG members had three facilitated discussions, each focusing on one of the three recommended sites and size options. PFAG members were reminded that they will receive final concept designs in 2023 and can then decide whether they want to recommend that the council place one, multiple, or none of the options on the ballot. There were 41 PFAC members present at the meeting, and PFAC members provided input through a straw poll vote at the beginning of each conversation, discussions about each potential site and size option, and a post-meeting survey and emails. It is important to note that PFAC members had less than two hours to hear and provide feedback on the information presented by OPSIS. PFAC members were able to ask some clarifying questions during the presentation, but with the amount of information shared, there were questions that remained unanswered. Additionally, PFAC members didn't have much time to share what they were excited about for a specific site. For the scope of what, PFAC what staff were asking PFAC members to do, which was give their initial input about site and size of the facility, staff feel that PFAC provided helpful insight that leads to tonight's staff recommendation. The straw poll asked PFAC members, should consultants develop a concept plan for this option? As indicated on this slide of initial poll results, overall, PFAC preferred options at Houghton Park and Ride and North Kirkland Community Center and Park. Options at Peter Kirk Community Center and Park received mixed PFAC support. I'm going to share a couple of summary highlights from the comments and questions PFAC members provided about each site option. PFAC members were generally the most positive about Houghton, the Houghton Park and Ride option and mentioned that it was a good use of an underutilized space. Some PFAC members wondered if the 105 square foot facility was too large, and some noted that the site does not, is not densely populated. PFAC members seemed interested in North Kirkland Community Center and Park, but had concerns about traffic and safety. They were also 
had questions about the size of a potential pool and ways to reduce costs. And finally, conversations about Peter Kirk Community Center and Park brought the most comments, concerns, and questions. As indicated by the poll results, PFEG members were almost evenly split on whether they initially thought the option should be taken to the concept design phase. PFEC members voiced that many people in the community have emotional connections to this site, which may make it a highly debated site if it was a centerpiece of a ballot initiative. Overall, many PFEC members were interested in exploring what it would take to have two facilities, one at Houghton Park and Ride site and one at the North Kirkland Community Center and Park site. So based on this, staff recommend narrowing the site options to focus on only two sites, the Houghton Park and Ride site and North Kirkland Community Center and Park. If the scope of work is narrowed, offices would have the time and capacity to develop multiple concept plan options for each site, which is what staff were recommending. Staff recommend moving one, removing Juanita Beach Park as a site option due to site concerns and low scores. Staff recommend removing Peter Kirk Community Center and Park as a site option based on PFEX feedback that the community is invested in this park and that extensive engagement may be necessary to adequately explore options. It is important to note that individual investments to improve Peter Kirk Park could still be considered as part of the ballot measure, as PFEC members are also looking at a list of other potential ballot measure elements that build builds on the pros plan recommendations. So tonight, staff are asking if council concurs with the staff recommendation. With concurrence, staff will direct offices to focus on Houghton Park and Ride and North Kirkland Community Center and Park as two site options with additional concepts options. Staff will provide a summary of council's feedback to the PFEC members who have also been encouraged to watch this meeting. And in early 2023, staff will return to council with OPSIS, who will present the developed concept plans. PFEC will also bring their recommendation to council. Madam Mayor, thank you for hearing our presentation, and we look forward to hearing council's feedback about the staff recommendation. Thank you all. What a great presentation. Um, so how do you want to proceed with this, council? Um, should we just begin with some discussion? You want to describe a little bit about the PFEC? Sure. I mean, you were there. Sure. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. And PFEC members are going to be watching, so everybody express your appreciation. Uh, these are 45 dedicated volunteers that are spending their time, their evenings, uh, diving deep and providing valuable information to our process. They're very eager to hear council feedback. Um, and I really am grateful for their contribution. So we did meet with the OPSIS ar uh, architects and the consultants to review the sites. Um, as Hillary outlined, the conversation was robust. Um, yes, there were uh, only two hours to discuss, but sometimes I think your gut reaction is your first reaction. Um, well, it is your first reaction, but it's a true reaction, a, tr a true response. Um, the comments on the Peter Kirk site uh, did center on the nostalgia of that, that park space and that we, we would be losing open space. And um, one successive comment I heard after PFAC is, you know, with this ballot measure, we want to give people something to vote for, not something to vote against. And I think that the initial response that that's not the right place for this large Aquatic Center is a good representation of how the community will feel about it. Um, I personally am very excited about the Houghton site. 
Um, it's, it's, as said, it's a really underutilized space that isn't going to have a lot of complications. It's close to uh, easy access on and off the freeway. It will be close to the station area plan. So um, the comment about the density is not there. It will be there. And I really like the idea of it being connected to that space. Um, I'm also personally enthusiastic about exploring two sites. I think it would be very interesting to look at a site that's in South Kirkland and then also explore the North Community Center. So I support uh, the staff recommendations. I really think it would be to our benefit to focus our energy on the two sites that we believe um, are the highest possibilities. Uh, as I said, PFAC is very engaged, and if we can narrow this to two sites. I feel confident that the feedback they give us will be very useful. Um, but I am looking forward to hearing the rest of your comments. Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So I was just going to speak quickly and just um, underscore um, how much we value the service of the, of the PFAC members um, and appreciate um, them taking time out of their um, schedules uh, to really to do this deep dive. Um, and so I, I, I really do want to um, be responsive to the feedback that they're giving us. Um, and I can understand as a longtime member of the Kirkland community, uh, I too can understand um, um, both their, the, the, the members generally positive response to some sites and negatives uh, and some concerns rather about some other sites. Uh, I like the idea of narrowing it down to two. I love the idea of the Houghton Park and Ride if everything were to align and it were to work out. And I, one of the things um, that I like about that is it's really additive to our, our park infrastructure. Um, that right now it's a big parking lot and, uh, and, and obviously a transit center, uh, but an underutilized one. And that's why it's you know, gonna be um, uh, available for public use in all likelihood. And it really, and so it's it's additive to um, our park park infrastructure, and that really does give people something to get excited about and vote for. So, those are my comments. Thank you, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, first, thank you, Directors Weigstra and Mary and Hillary. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis, and a huge thank you to those who are serving on PFAC. I know we, as Councilmember Curtis mentioned, it is a big time commitment, and your input is very, very, very uh, important. Um, we do value your input, and we obviously, as you can hear from our comments, we hear you, and we're acting on the input that you're giving us already, so thank you for that. Um, I also am, to borrow Councilmember Curtis's word, enthusiastic about the, um, about the potential interest in two facilities from, from PFAC. I think um, I'm certainly interested in exploring that. I do support staff's recommendation to, to narrow down to two potential sites and to look at all different combinations of what we could do with those two sites, including possibly having two different um, indoor uh, aquatics uh, community center facilities. I do think it would give um, folks throughout Kirkland something to vote for, having something both in the north and the south. We know that there's such a great need. I know as a mom to young kids who tries to sign up for swim lessons over the summer with three of my kids that it is really, really hard to do that, right? Um, and we know there's there's very long waiting lists. We've been on waiting lists for years and years at many different places for swim lessons, for um, just access to aquatics here um, in the greater, greater Kirkland area. And so we know there's such a huge need. And so I can easily see that we could um, make very good use, the community could make very good use of two facilities. 
So I support that and I think those are all my notes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Yeah. And thanks for, for to the PFAC and staff, and I won't go on there, but very much appreciate all the effort so far. I had just a, a few questions and then some comments. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of work here, and I'm just trying to get up to speed on all the great work that's been done. So that's why the questions are more just uh, trying to understand how we got here. So with the Houghton Park and Ride, the two uh, proposals. I noticed there wasn't a medium-large proposal for that site. It was medium or it was large. I think I got that right. Um, could you explain uh, why we didn't look at that medium-large? Because I noticed the medium was an outdoor pool, not an indoor pool. Um, was there a reason that we didn't do that? Or we were just trying to have two very different sizes? Yes, we were trying to um, basically diversify the options that we had before us at all the sites and tried to be a little more creative in how we were trying to accommodate all those program spaces and the variety of those sites. Yes, we could certainly look at a medium large, um, even going into the future as we focus in on these two sites. Okay. And then the other question was, you know, for me, one of the biggest most important things out of this ballot measure is going to be really addressing our aquatic needs, along with all the other park needs. But aquatics is kind of paramount, and and I'm just wondering with that North Kirkland Community um, Center medium large option, would that really accomplish the aquatic needs by itself, um, or is that really dependent upon only if a second site is developed? Do you want to go ahead, Mary? You want me to take that? No, I I, I can go ahead. Okay. Um, so the idea is, uh, um, it, at this point, it, it we were trying to look at the entire system and trying to be complementary between the facilities that we were looking at. Um, so we do have that opportunity again to revisit that and see how we can uh, look at some concepts that are complementary to uh, both North Kirkland and Houghton. Okay. Oops, so sorry, more specifically, I, we don't think any of the medium large sort of address the aquatic needs of the community. Um, the large 105,000 comes close, but even that one could argue you still need more aquatics facilities, but it was more about fit and cost yeah. to make the medium large. So as a standalone only know it, it wouldn't address the full suite of aquatic needs in the city. Yeah, that, I mean, that's something that's on my mind. Um, I think it's nice to think about developing two sites. I just, looking at the cost, I don't, uh, it's hard to fathom. And that's just the cost of those. Those aren't operating costs. Those aren't mm -hmm. you know, other park stuff. That goes on. Um, so that's why I asked the question, making sure that we have a viable site that addresses, you know, kind of our uh, most critical needs, right? And then uh, making sure a viable plans for those. And then the, the last question was more around the Houghton Park and Ride. Um, do we have any updates on where that is at in terms of, you know, when was the last time we talked to the county? Do we think that's coming, going to be uh, for sale 
you know, is it imminent? <laughs> is it is it another six months? Is it twelve months? Yeah, no, uh, so it it is imminent. Um, so Beth Goldberg, our deputy city manager, has them on a tickler file and has been checking it every couple of weeks. Where's the appraisal? How can we move forward? The WashDOT has basically had a huge amount of turnover in their segment there that, that does appraisals and assessments. And surplusing aside is like one of their lowest priorities compared to all the other right-of-way acquisition they have to do for active projects. So it just kept getting pushed on, which is why it's taken way too long. The good news is um, she reached out to them last week and they said that they are within a week or two of finalizing the appraisal. And once they get that to us, we'll have the number and then we can begin purchase. They did say the purchase may take a while, given again that they're they're down staff in that particular segment, but that's at the place where we can at least get certainty. Um, we do know we're the only government has acted to get the surplus property. So basically we have the right, the first call on it as soon as we can get the number. Yeah, if there's anything, anything we can do to help push that forward faster, I'm all over it. <laughs> I'm sure we all are. Um, and then as far as comments, I think I've said this from, I, I feel like I've been saying this for a long time, but, you know, really identifying a site for the Aquatic and Community Center is, is, is critical, I think, for any type of success with a ballot measure. So trying to really refine this in this kind of short amount of time is is a monumental effort, but 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 just absolutely critical uh, for moving this forward. And I, I like the idea of really developing the facility, right sizing it for the location. So um, uh, at this point, in, in terms of the uh, recommendations, I, I fully support advancing those concepts. Um, you know, North Kirkland Community Center, I think, needs to be addressed regardless. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, uh, I don't know where this where this will go for that site, but I mean, I definitely want to see some some type of investment there. And then I just want to speak to Peter Kirk Park really quick. I was I was when I first read this, I was surprised a little that it was that it's being recommended for removal. We we have invested planning and, and design resources over the last few years to kind of come up with some different concepts for that. And to me, it wasn't always about the aquatic center. It was about reimagining what Peter, Car Peter Kirk Park could be, recognizing that you couldn't just pop something there and then kind of, you know, move things around, that it would have to be a, a new vision for that park with a lot of different amenities. And the aquatic center would just be one, of, one piece of that. And unfortunately, we're in this period where we don't have the time to develop that vision to, to really kind of look at a viable aquatic center at that site. I personally believe like if we had the time, there could be a pretty cool visioning exercise where you could get a better, a better um, a, an all season field. Uh, you could, we could look at our, our non, our K-Tub and the community center together and all those things, but it would have to be something really, really large. Um, so it's just more of a disappointment because I see that there's so much p more potential for that site as we develop around it um, that I would like us to th really think about what's next for, for Peter Kirk. So anyways, I just wanted to put that out there as that was something that I'm really interested in. Thank you. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I chair many of Council Member Pascal's remarks. I'm disappointed that the feasibility study did, in, in looking at siting at Peter Kirk Park, 
made major changes to the park in Lee Johnson Field too. The other concepts looked at greenfield development or redevelopment with a parking lot, whereas Peter Kirk site didn't just replace the pool and redevelop the senior center, but it made major changes to the park. And I can appreciate and totally understand PFEC's reaction and feedback to that, which I do believe reflects the community and is what we asked them to do. But I think that they're, from uh, what Councilmember Pascal has mentioned, we, we have looked at uh, that site and I think there could be ways to do it without making whole change wholesale change to the park, and I'm disappointed the feasibility study didn't take that opportunity. Um, that said, I really appreciate PFEC's creativity in thinking about two sites and want to move forward with their, their recommendations. I think that looks at both um, the needs that we're thinking about for the aquatic center, redevelopment that needs to happen at North Kirkland Community Center, and having some geographic benefit. As we look at the Houghton Park and Ride site, I'd go back to our station area plan discussion. We discussed many potential uses for that site, including affordable housing, schools, and park space. As we look at the site, I really want to go in with this with our eyes open and saying, what of those options are being foreclosed and using it for an aquatics and recreation facility? Is there the opportunity to have that park space for that neighborhood where we expect um, more uh, more population, and is that corner that we're talking about ha thinking about playground or other facilities, or are we foreclosing on that? Um, same with, with the other options. Are there opportunities to partner or not? Something to think about as it moves forward. Thank you. Thank you. Any further discussion? Um, I think I'll just pile on a little bit. Um, we are so grateful to PFEC for the work that you're putting in on this. You know, I sat in on the last two Prop 1 initiatives and worked with the, the various groups of people when we went through ComSAG, and Jay and I worked with Prop 1 for, for police. The service that you are providing is invaluable. Um, the, 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 all those extra eyes and all those extra hearts involved in our community makes such a huge difference. So please believe us when we say we really appreciate your work and we are we are paying attention. I think your sensitivity to the issues at Peter Kirk is spot on. Uh, I share the disappointment of, of my peers a little bit in kind of leaving Peter Kirk behind again. Uh, but I, I applaud your recommendation um, around um, around the Houghton Park and Ride. Um, it seems to me that if we can get that piece of property, that, that this is going to, it has to be a major consideration since green space is one of the major things that we're talking about in the station area plan, and it's just blocks away. So, um, again, you know, how we lay that out is going to have to be expansive enough to incorporate a fair amount of park space. But I think in the design, I saw that there was the opportunity for, for us to do exactly that at the Houghton Park and Ride. Um, I live two blocks away from the Houghton, from the North Kirkland um, Community Center, and I'm really excited about the option of another facility there. Um, I think that this is our opportunity to go big. I think that our community was incredibly disappointed when we failed with the ARC um, 
legislation a couple of years ago, um, and and we we failed, you know, for different reasons. And the and the folks who fought it are are willing to come on board and support uh, support an initiative at this point. Uh, we've been talking about this my entire career on this council, um, so we've got to get this done. So thank you for your work. Um, let's go big. And with that, I hope, Lynn, ladies, I hope that you have what you need. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay, moving right along. Where are we going now? So we're not going to do, we're doing 85th Street? Right, so we're going to be doing, no, we're going to be proposing to the stationary plan. That was the study session presentation instead of the conference plan updates. That's right. Okay. Placing C with the stationary plan. And then we'll come back at a future council meeting with the comp plan update, uh, which was just an update. There was no action on that. So once again, I want to turn over to Allison Zyke, our deputy planning and building director, and Adam Weinstein, our planning director, and their team. Thank you, city manager, and good evening again, Madam Mayor, deputy mayor, and council members. We've got a quick update for you tonight on the station area um, aside from the planned action ordinance. So we're here to give you a brief update on the status of phase two form-based code development. Um, I'm gonna do a really quick overview of where we're at on the form-based code development. Um, rather than a comprehensive overview of all the components in that form-based code, I wanna really just focus in tonight on giving council a flavor of what the major topics of discussion have been with planning commission um, as we uh, work on a final draft of that code. Um, our transportation planner, Victoria Kovacs, is here to give you an update on the 120th Avenue Northeast or the station area Main Street um, study, and then we'll talk about some next steps. Uh, we also have Scott Guter on the line who's been really focused on the form-based code for the last several months, so he's stepped in to help us with phase two and has been uh, super helpful for us. Um, so overview of, of the whole plan and what we're focused in on getting towards adoption now. Um, we're focused on the items that are in this dashed line. So you just held a public hearing on the planned action ordinance for the station area. And then we're working on the form-based code for phase two and then parcel rezones that will implement that form-based code. All of our work in phase two is grounded in the vision for the station area that council adopted and that both council and the community spent a lot of time thinking about and forming over the past almost three years. Um, and so that vision is on the screen. It's really to develop the station area as a thriving transit oriented district with lots of options for jobs and housing um, and different services. So I'm going to jump into some of the updates on the regulating district. So this is the, the zones uh, included in the form-based code for the station area. The specific regulating standards in these zones are focused on the urban design framework that was adopted by council in the station area plan. And so just a few items um, that we're focusing on is focusing that growth near transit with the future BRT station, creating really strong public spines. Um, so focusing on the public realm along certain streets um, to implement a really great active transportation network, um, providing better access and, and really elevating the, the visual access to existing natural systems like Forbes Lake, and then working a lot on how we scale that new growth to adjacent neighborhoods. And we'll talk a lot about transitions here in a moment. 
The phase two districts that we're working on right now um, are shown on the screen here. So this is the regulating districts map for the station area. Council already adopted a form-based code for the commercial mixed-use district back in June of this year. And now we're working on the rest of the districts. So standards for the neighborhood mixed-use district, the civic mixed-use district that covers Lake Washington High School, and the urban flex district that's over in that Norkirk light industrial area. Again, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of what the specific regulating standards uh, for each district are, are trying to achieve. Um, again, within that urban design framework that we all already have adopted in the station area plan. So in the neighborhood mixed use district, this is really where we have the most density after the commercial mixed use district. It runs along 85th and then there's a, a good portion over west of uh, 405 as well. So in this district, we're working on developing form-based code standards that um, emphasize upper-level setbacks to reduce that perceived scale. So working on stepping buildings back as they get taller. Also using floor plate maximums to reduce the bulk of structures as they get higher. This is another area of the station area where we plan to have an incentive zoning program. So focusing on a base height that's allowed by right and then receiving community benefits uh, for development over that base height up to the bonus height or the maximum allowed height. And then we've also got some pretty specific standards about how the facade of that building fronts the pedestrian realm um, and have standards that that kind of focus on how wide they are, where there's facade breaks, all 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 uh, structured to try to create a great experience at that pedestrian level. In the urban flex district, which is over in the Norkirk neighborhood in the existing light industrial area, um, this is an area where we're introducing just a little more height, about 10 feet for most of the parcels, um, but keeping that height increase limited so that it still fits within the context of Norkirk. Uh, we are allowing larger floor plates because we heard from council and from planning commission it was important to continue supporting the industrial uses and the commercial uses we have in that area we have talked about introducing an allowance for residential uses on upper floors to kind of increase the 24 7 activity in the area eyes on the street that type of thing and then we also wanted to follow up on the great comment that we got from miss mcconnell earlier about the cross Kirkland corridor standards really appreciate calling that out. Um, and we wanted to clarify for council that the cross Kirkland corridor standards. So uh, talking about how buildings relate to that corridor will apply in this area. So that's already adopted by reference in the form based code and we'll make sure that it's super clear in the phase two uh, form based code as well. In the Civic Mixed-Use District, which covers the Lake Washington High School site, um, we do have a significant height increase here to give the school district a lot of opportunity and flexibility um, to potentially add school capacity there in the future. Um, so it's 75 feet for the portion of the site that um, doesn't have a, a lot of direct adjacency to lower density, and then where the existing structures are, and then where we've got some lower density residential across the street, uh, increasing the height only by 10 feet. So 75 feet though for a good portion of the site. Um, we've got large floor plate allowances again to, to provide the school district with lots of flexibility. Um, we will implement upper story setbacks and other things that will help larger structures fit into the neighborhood context. 
Uh, we have had a great continuing conversation with the school district about the standards here for this site and also kind of how they fit into the larger station area plan. Um, we did review these specific standards with the school district recently, and they um, submitted a letter to planning commission a couple weeks ago, stating their support for uh, the standards we have drafted. I did want to give council a quick update on the neighborhood residential areas, which I've outlined here in bold. These have showed up on um, prior versions of this map and we had contemplating contemplated, excuse me, implementing a form based code in these areas, but hadn't included an increase in development capacity. So at this time, we've decided that if a form based code is used to really encourage more missing middle housing types or make significant changes in existing low density areas, that exploration is really best suited for a larger scale project that's looking at more areas of the city than just the kind of limited number of parcels that you see outlined here. And so at this time, we aren't drafting a form based code standards for the areas you see outlined here that are primarily existing low density parcels and a, and a few uh, medium density parcels. Uh, we do still, though, think that we'll get some of the street type standards implemented here um, and that we don't by, by not drafting form-based code standards for these areas right now, uh, we don't think that's gonna get in the way of us accomplishing our, our vision and goals for the stationary plan. So on those regulating district standards, just a quick highlight of what Planning Commission has talked about a lot. They focused a lot on the pedestrian experience at grade. And so they've given staff a lot of direction to be very intentional about how we talk about allowed ground floor uses uh, in the form-based code. Um, and we're getting at that right now in the draft with being very thoughtful about the frontage types that are allowed and then the standards for those specific frontage types. Um, also looking at things like limiting uh, lobby areas or other spaces that might not be active along the street level. So zooming out a bit to the district-wide standards, uh, the district-wide standards really center on the community benefits framework. And so we've always kept in mind when we're developing standards in the station area, these five areas that were identified by the community and endorsed by council as where we should focus a lot of our attention. So housing, mobility, parks, schools, and sustainability. Um, and it's important to note that one of the key strategies identified to achieve those community benefits was increasing the height in a lot of the station area. So that increase in value that comes with the increase in height and development capacity is one of the ways that we're going to help enable future development to provide community benefits as sites redevelop. A couple notes about affordable housing in phase two, we know that's really important to council. Um, just by virtue of more housing in the station area, we will get more housing units overall, but we'll also under our existing inclusionary requirements get more affordable housing units. And then we're working on other ways to incentivize and obtain more affordable housing units in the station area that go beyond our existing 10% inclusionary requirement. We're exploring that through the development of an incentive zoning program. Council adopted an incentive zoning program structure for phase one that applies to the commercial mixed use district. That included an option for commercial development to contribute to affordable housing funds. In the second phase, we're working on developing performance-based measures. 
those are still in development, so we don't have a draft ready, but we expect to have that in the next uh, month or two. Uh, to spend just a minute or two on what's really been um, the bulk of Planning Commission's discussion around the phase two form based code. Um, we've had 3 study sessions with them so far, and we've talked about transitions every time. So it's really important to get this 1 right and planning commissions um, provided us with great feedback to kind of make sure we've got that dialed in. So right now, um, a transition strategy is required where there's a difference in allowed height across parcels of greater than 30 feet. So those areas you see highlighted in that dashed line on your screen. We've looked at a lot of examples with planning commission of how kind of stepping down heights and different transition strategies can feel and look like on the ground. We've also spent a lot of time providing schematics and looking at different types of development that would be allowed under the draft form based code and how that would impact neighboring properties. And so we've been doing a lot of work with planning commission, trying to show them different options for transitions to make sure that we're getting it right. Right now, um, there is an adopted transition strategy in the phase one code that requires all the areas you saw highlighted on the previous screen. So this one, those are all required to implement where they apply a sky exposure plane of, of 25% uh, or sorry, not percent degrees, 25 degrees sky exposure plane. Um, Planning Commission felt like areas that had a height difference that was pretty significant. Um, they identified over 50 feet. So where the height difference between parcels is more than 50 feet that it might be appropriate to have a more, um, I'm gonna get my acute and obtuse angles mixed up here, um, but a, a, a different angle that, that kind of cut away more bulk and mass at the top of the building. And so staff took them an option for 30 degrees to test that out and see how it felt to them. Um, we showed them some schematics. This is the area of, this, of the stationary where the greatest height difference exists. This is the taco time site here at 85th and 120th. Uh, this structure would be allowed potentially to go up to 150 feet. This is what it would look like. And again, this doesn't cut out kind of some of the massing and modulation that design standards would apply, but it is an example kind of of how the, the general bulk would be with a 30 degree angle sky exposure plane. We also showed them an option for a 45 degree angle, but noted that when we get to that extreme of an angle, it starts uh, preventing development from achieving the maximum height allowed by the zone. And then that does translate into the potential for us to lose some of the community benefits we might achieve by development up to that height. So we talked about that with them. Uh, that resulted just to cover transitions first in planning commission asking us to explore some options for a sky exposure plane between 30 and 45 degrees. So we're still trying to find and dial in that exact uh, angle that we should require for the more significant height differences. Um, in the areas where the height difference is between 30 and 50 feet, planning commission has felt that that 25 sky exposure 25 degree sky exposure plane is already appropriate um, as we've adopted it in phase one. And on incentive zoning, we continue to work on those options for affordable housing benefits. Uh, to cover parking and then kick it over to uh, Victoria for the 120th corridor study, just wanted to note to council that planning commissions also had significant discussion around the parking ratios in the stationary plan. 
the parking um, ratios have been informed by a lot of study and analysis by the city's transportation planners and transportation engineers. Um, we've looked at a lot of previous examples of parking modifications to try to to acknowledge where we've reduced parking from the existing standards throughout the city. Uh, this has resulted in recommended parking ratios that are lower for the most part um, for uses than they than currently exist citywide. So the stationary in general will have lower minimum parking requirements. Um, Planning Commission has has continued to kind of ask about if there are certain uses where an even lower parking ratio might be appropriate and we're working on that. And with that, I will hand it off to Victoria to talk about the 120th Avenue uh, corridor study. Thanks, Allison. Uh, good evening, Council. I have about nine more slides for you uh, to give you a high level summary of this study. And of course, if you are interested in more detail, we can certainly give you a more detailed briefing separately. Uh, but as a refresher, this more detailed analysis of the 120th Main Street was authorized as part of that June 7th council meeting in the adoption process in order to answer questions about consistency of the design of the corridor, including bike facilities, and taking a more detailed look at some of the frontage considerations. And Farron Piers was selected as the consultant for this study building on their knowledge through the station area plan. And this figure is from the station area plan, the urban design strategy to designate 120th as a main street. It connects Forbes Lake and the high school as well as future high density development. And um, you know, it's envisioned with wider sidewalks, improved tree canopy, human scaled, active ground floors and a new civic heart for the district. Next slide. As a reminder, this is the street types map that is currently adopted in the plan. Um, would you click one more? Thank you. That's the 120th corridor study. And as you can see, it does have two street designations right now. So uh, one update, should you want to agree with the alternate design that I'll present, would update this map to be one consistent color for that corridor. Next slide, please. So zooming into the corridor now, uh, north is to your right to orient you. And all the zoning here shown is from the station area plan, as well as a few key landmarks for reference. Uh, starting at the right, the north end, we have Forbes Lake and the Costco site, the Madison Rose Hill mixed use development, aka the Petco site now, and then further south of 85th, the Google Lee Johnson site the Kirkwood Terrace King County Housing Authority site, and then the Church and Sophia Way Women's Shelter closer to Northeast 80th Street. Uh, next slide, please. So what is currently adopted in the station area plan uh, is this role plot. And it's generally from, again, starting at the north end, a wider shared use path on the west side of 120th along the Costco frontage, utilizing that existing wide sidewalk there, but uh, redefining it as a shared use path. And then on the east side, that new development is based on the approved plans from the Rose Hill mixed use development, which is a wider sidewalk and a landscape space than what exists today. And then next slide. And then further south of 85th, it's actually a bit of a different cross section. 
um, in front of the Google Lee Johnson property frontage, we relied on the, the development agreement standards set there that would have uh, the continuation of the existing southbound bike lane, as well as a designated uh, pickup loading space on the street, and then an added left turn lane as part of the 85th um, intersection capacity improvements. And generally, if you look, scrutinize that section, it does show a very narrow sidewalk along the Lee Johnson frontage, but that's not accounting for their plans for um, plaza at that, at that backup block. So that would actually be a wider pedestrian space. And moving further south, uh, the proposed, or what is in the stationary plan, I should say, is a continuous two-way left turn lane. And that allows us to have a turning lane pocket at that future Google development as well as a dedicated turn lane at the 80th Street intersection. The next slide. So this alternate design that we did have during peers evaluate across the corridor is a more consistent cross section. It uh, delineates a separate walking and biking facility instead of a shared use path. The vehicle lane configurations are the same between the two options. So if you look at the cross section there, AA, starting at the north end, uh, that's a wider 10-foot sidewalk, and then a you know, one-foot linear delineation, and then a five-foot sidewalk-level bike path. And that's uh, essentially the, the same on the opposite side. And that's a, a consistent uh, cross section throughout the corridor. We'll go to the next slide. As we're again south of 85th, we did maintain the pickup and loading spaces in front of the Google Lee Johnson site with a sidewalk level bike lane. We did see an opportunity to potentially um, separate out bike head crossing movements of that driveway with a dedicated turn lane into the driveway. And then further south, uh, we also kind of look closer at the, the Kirkland Cemetery frontage as well as the parking for the uh, women's shelter. And instead of a continuous two-way left turn lane, looked at some on-street parking options there. So next slide. This is a, a summary of evaluating these two options, baseline being what is adopted in the stationary plan and this alternative design. We did present this to Transportation Commission in their October meeting. And overall, they were supportive of adopting the alternative design because it does give a designated bike facility, a protected bike lane, uh, which is a lower stress, um, you know, more all ages and abilities network connection than just the, the southbound on-street bike lane and uh, downhill shared until you get to the shared use path at 85th. The major trade-offs between the two I would say is primarily within the right-of-way dedication. There is a little bit more with the alternate, but there is opportunity for more on-street parking and uh, more consistent wider sidewalks. And the next slide shows the right-of-way trade-off between the two. So there's kind of generally a little bit more along the, the north end, more as you approach the intersection with 85th. And then the more significant area actually is at the very south end along the housing authority and the church site. And that concludes the slides.
know, as I noted, uh, Transportation Commission did endorse this alternate design. Allison, I'll turn it back to you to talk about Planning Commission. Thanks, Victoria. Um, and so, as I mentioned previously, on on parking, Planning Commission asked staff to look at possibly drafting some lower parking ratios, specifically for affordable housing units. Um, they've asked us questions to try to clarify where street parking might be allowed in the district in the future, and then. Related to the 120th um, Avenue Northeast study, they did have some questions about if development would be significantly impacted in terms of capacity by additional right-of-way dedication requirements. We understand that even up to 12 feet of additional right-of-way being required um, at the heights we're talking about uh, wouldn't really result in a significant uh, change to, to overall development capacity, but they did have that question that we wanted to surface for you. With that, um, earlier to, I planned to do this before, but now this is after. You already did your, your hearing on the planned action ordinance. Thank you. Um, and then we'll be working on uh, towards a public hearing for the form-based code with planning commission, and then would be bringing uh, council, uh, both the phase two form-based code and the planned action ordinance uh, for adoption together at a future meeting um, anticipated in early 2023. And with that, Madam Mayor, I will hand it back over to you for any council questions or comments. Super. Thank you, Allison. Thank you all for a great report. Uh, discussion? Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thanks uh, you all for for presenting tonight and really do appreciate the work that everyone's been uh, continuing to advance uh, this planning, these planning efforts, um, also to our planning commissioners for their review. Uh, I have like three comments, questions. The first is maybe start with the 120th Avenue study. Uh, really pleased to see that we um, did this additional effort. That was kind of what I think for me personally, that was what I was looking for, was really trying to make sure we were um, envisioning a street that would provide uh, opportunities for all and how in getting around. So I, I like what I see. The question is, is I've noticed that we have a similar cross section for the active transportation users, the walkers and bikers. Uh, in Totem Lake Village, where you have the the sidewalk, and then directly next to it, you have the what we call protected bike lane. But what I see, how I see that used in Totem Lake Village is that it's basically a free for all. Um, and if you're a biker, you pretty much don't use it uh, because there's there's no real space, uh, um, even though that there's a separate pavement. Uh, color that's there and most people probably don't even know that it's a bike lane to be honest um, and so how do we prevent that from occurring here I mean taking what we learned there that that works great for for pedestrians it might be great for kids on 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 bicycles but for someone who really wants to use a bicycle as a mode of transportation it doesn't really work that well um, have you, did you kind of factor that in here and and how how can we make sure that that we're thinking about that going forward for 120th. I can answer that. Thank you for that question. Certainly something in transportation we've been talking about and thinking about for protected bike lanes elsewhere in the city. 
I think the key lesson learned is a design standard that we would apply to developments that would construct the half street section. The totem lake example isn't well differentiated between sidewalk and biking space. It is a very subtle color change. There are not standard bike lane markings. They're very decorative, small medallions that can easily get lost. There also isn't a tactile delineation for people with low or no vision. So we are looking at standards, uh, a new standard document for our active transportation design facilities generally, which we would apply here and other protected bike lanes in the city, which I think we would want to see a stronger material change like asphalt and concrete, as well as, you know, a, a yellow strip between the two. And those styles have been applied elsewhere, you know, in Seattle and, and Portland with success. That's good. I'm glad that, that you all are working on that. Um, just wanted to point that out and make sure that, that it's being addressed. Um, the second is around land use. And I saw this, some of the Planning Commission comments were, were making sure that, you know, the sidewalk space is activated, right? And so how do you do that? What's the best um, methods for doing that under a form-based code? And it kind of gets back to, I think, some comments that I've been raising all along with, with 85th Street plan is really, you know, part of this vision, at least that I see, is that this, this area needs to continue to provide those retail services for our community, not just for those that, that live or work in 85th Street area, but those neighborhoods that surround it. And I, I just want to have some assurance that we're not just going to have a bunch of office buildings and residential structures um, once this is redeveloped and, you know, a good chunk of the retail and the services that people need um, will go elsewhere. Um, so how how are we, I guess, I guess maybe you could kind of, I'm just looking for reassurance that that's not going to happen. <laughs> I can I can start with that, and I'm going to ask Scott to help me out a little bit too. Um, I'm I'm not going to use um, the the P word promise, but um, I we're trying to get at it a couple ways, and we've explored a couple different options with planning commissions. So I think we have an interest in trying to use the form based code to accomplish as much of the work as we can, rather than falling back on trying to really tighten up specific use restrictions. Um, but planning commission, I think had a similar, similar question to you, as you pointed out. Um, so we have explored a little bit with planning commission, the idea of, of setting, um, specific use requirements. Um, so talking about what's inside the building and defining a certain set of active uses. Um, one of the perspectives that sort of rose at planning commission was that it's also really important to make sure these spaces are filled in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we've been working through is trying to balance ensuring that we're going to get active uses on that ground floor, but also not making those so restrictive that we get vacant spaces sitting there. Um, and planning commission had some comments about some some buildings in Totem Lake where they've seen um, kind of long-term vacancies at the ground floor. Um, I'd like to throw it over to Scott to just talk about how we've adjusted the allowed frontage types um, to, to try to get at it with the form-based code rather than use requirements. Yeah, so um, what the, um, the form-based code um, uh, prescribes is um, 
to in order to activate the the public realm, we have the uh, the street the street use standards uh, or street type standards that actually um, um, have allowed frontage types that are associated with them, and they offer up a, a suite of of different types of uh, frontage standards that go. Uh, from the range of a, uh, a residential use only frontage to uh, a highly activated um, street um, street use type uh, frontage type that um, is typical of what we would see along a uh, retail frontage. And the way we're trying to address this um, in most of the streets that are in the neighborhood mixed use zone, which is uh, a large portion of what what we're um, um, zoning for is that we're only allowing for uh, a couple of uh, frontage type standards that um, really speak towards the desired outcome, which um, would be the active uh, active street uh, frontage type and the um, plaza types that are also um, very activated. Um, uh, and have um, opportunity for um, a, a rich uh, public realm, active public realm. And um, in those frontage types, they come with uh, a kind of separation of, of parking areas that we, we would typically see on a ground floor. So making sure that there would be a depth between the, um, the front of the building and and any other kind of like parking that a structure that would be built behind that that opens up a kind of a uh, a kind of a storefront area that is um, uh, needing to be filled in those areas. So between that and the uh, the kind of frontage um, you know regularity that we're kind of putting in the frontage types that would be act activated. Um, um, as described in in the um, the active um, frontage um, standards, it would it would kind of present a um, a, a, a the kind of the kind of front that would that would be frontage that would be um, typical of a you know downtown uh, you know um, street uh, or at least a, a storefront. I think I was following most of that. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, uh, but <laughs> it would I think be good to I, have it would be helpful to have um, you know next time or you know as you're kind of working through it, just some more illustrations of kind of what that means, how what that what that will result in. Um, just like I said, to get to give me some more assurance that we're not going to lose out on you know the ten minute neighborhoods, which which is services within. You know, ten minutes around where we where we live, right? So, um, and then the last the last item was we had some comments earlier at the public hearing around the CKC. Sounds like uh, those are already addressed in the design requirements. Um, the one comment, though, I don't know that I I was kind of curious about was, you know, why isn't the Cross Kirkland Corridor treated similar to other kind of frontage improvements for streets? 
you know, so if a property is developed along a street uh, that doesn't have a sidewalk and other frontage, they're required to, to make those, those, those improvements. But when a property develops along CKC, they don't necessarily, they're not really required under code to do any kind of improvements. Is that, is that because it's not technically a right-of-way? Is that, I guess, right? I, yeah, thanks for the thanks for the question, Councilmember Pascal. I think that's a big a big part of it. So we didn't develop um, at least within the station area plan street standards for the CKC. We've really leaned on referencing the existing design standards for parcels that are adjacent to the CKC, and we reference those in the form based code. Um, and then I just open it up for any other team members if you have any additional context. But I but I think you kind of hit on it, uh, Councilmember Pascal. It was just kind of a question that I was thinking about, you know, as properties develop along the CKC, you know, is, is, there, is there, are there improvements that can be made to that frontage? Um, yeah, I just something to, th to, to look into. I think it's a bigger issue than just this area. But thank you. Didn't we have some standards that we adopted when we bought the CKC around frontage? We did. I think one of the other factors is we just have the interim trail. We don't have the the master plan for the like what happens when you, you know, for example, if you were to have transit on it or a paved section. And I think the other thing is a cross section in many cases is obviously the right of way we own then goes like up like this or it goes down like this. And so it's just we've never really tackled that. I think it's a really good point, but we just haven't really thought about it because it doesn't develop the same way because it's not flat. Most of it most mm -hmm. slanted. Or has big ditches, things like that. So. Right, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold, did you have a comment? Okay, uh, Councilmember Black, I forgot to put your name out. You got it. Mm -hmm. uh, just I uh, just one quick uh, point of clarification. Um, we could, I suppose, go back to the slide uh, where the deputy director, um, where you highlighted the. Um, neighborhood residential zones that are not going to be part of form-based code in phase two. I don't think we necessarily need to do that. But on that slide, um, staff had highlighted two neighborhood residential areas, one in South Rose Hill and one in the Highlands area. Um, just so that we sort of avoid confusion. Oh, great. Thank you. We could, yes. There's also a pocket of neighborhood residential in North Rose Hill, a small pocket. That's not inside a bold um, delineation. Is it, for our own edification and for those members of our community, is that included, is that pocket of neighborhood residential included in the staff recommendation not to do uh, form-based code as part of this phase two? That's correct, Councilmember Black. Thanks for allowing us the opportunity to clarify that should have a bold line around it. So that is another area where we're not proposing to develop a form-based code at this point in time. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. I'm so tired, I was afraid I was gonna forget my question before <laughs> waiting my turn. Um, so I just wanna echo, uh, see, Councilmember Pascal's concern about activating this frontage. So I would love to see more information about that um, and visuals always help. I also wanna echo 
the raising of the CKC and the possibilities around that. I mean, as I start sitting here brainstorming, I'm, I immediately go to pocket parks and plazas and so forth. I mean, I've, I personally, and I think we've all visualized the CKC is an, as, an asset that we build to not away from. So um, I'd like to see more about that. And before we finish, we have to talk about my favorite subject, which will be trees and whether we're going to name this area. So let's don't forget to do that. I want to name it too. <laughs> Where are we with that? Well, I think what I'd say is there didn't seem to be resounding support for any of the names submitted by the public, um, but there was the suggestion Council from Black Hat about the Cedar District or a native term for the Cedar, which I think the Council was interested in exploring. We have reached out, both Jim Lopez and um, Erica Moscoro, our DIB manager, to the tribes to see if we could engage in that conversation, and so far they have not yet engaged, but they're continuing to reach out to them. So we hope to have something maybe to bring back in December to talk about if, if the council is still interested in that version of a, of a name. Concept. It sure would be nice to start the year with something other than the SAT. <laughs> Councilmember Curtis. Thank you. I just want to say that I really like the idea of the Cedar District. If we do it, we have to plant Thuya Placata's there, because I don't want a cedar district without any cedars. So um, take that into consideration, too. Thank you. Okay. No further discussion? Thank you very much, Allison and team. Thanks for the time tonight, Council. And I believe that takes us to autonomous delivery. Uh, so, so, Madam Mayor, I wanted to suggest that we defer this topic, just given your early start and the late hour. I think this is one that there will also be some policy discussion, and so I think this might be one to bring back to a future council meeting. Others uh, don't need to act. Idea. Good to see you, John. <laughs> <laughs> if, if that works for the council. Yes, John, it was great seeing you. Looks like we're deferring this item. <laughs> Yeah, where are you, Seattle? I'm in Seattle, yes. Okay. okay. All right. Well, thanks much. So with that, I think we'll take us to reports, and I think I'll start at the other end of the bench this time and start with uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. I uh, have uh, one thing to report in my role as co-chair of the East Trail Regional Advisory Committee. Um, with my co-chair, King County Councilmember Perry, we sent emails to legislators in um, districts adjacent to the East Trail, asking them to fund the East Trail improvements in the state's transportation package this session. Um, and I will forward you the email that was sent. The funding's already been included in the transportation package passed last session, but the question is, over the period, the ten-year period of the transportation package, what gets built when, and we're emphasizing that East Trail projects are ready to go now, and we'd like the legislative work group to consider adding that to our support agenda. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you. Before I go on to Councilmember Pascal, I skipped the selection process. City Manager. So this was actually typically made by the clerk, who, as you know, is, is uh, not with us tonight as she's recovering. Uh, but the interview selection committee made a recommendation to the council to essentially suspend your rules and forward four names on to interviews uh, for these 
versus the normal three. So we just wanted to see if the council concurs with that recommendation. And we would need, I think, a motion to suspend the rules and accept the recommendation. So moved. Second. The move by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Black to suspend the rules and move forward with the recommendation to accept the recommendation. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? The motion carries. Thank you. Thank you. Back to you, Mr. Pascal. That was just suspending the rules, right? Do we have to vote on it or did we just do it all in one? I thought yeah, we did one. it all in one. Oh. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, just one thing, just uh, for the record, just want to uh, thank Councilmember Balducci for her support in getting the K line funded through the King County budget process. That was uh, not an easy feat uh, to um, to somehow find the seven million dollars to to advance that to preliminary design and get it ready for for federal a uh, small starts funding. So um, just wanted to announce that. I assume it was passed officially today. It was going before the county council. I haven't confirmed that, but the budget did pass today. I, I know the budget amendment had already been put in, so I, yeah. I'm ninety nine percent sure. I don't think she was letting them out of the room without that. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the only thing I want to report on. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, and I echo Councilmember Pascal's thank you to Councilmember um, Balducci for um, the support of that funding. Um, I will keep it really brief because I also am very tired, like, like most of us. Um, Councilmember Black and I had a wonderful time last night with Cub Scout Pack 559 talking about um, local government and our role in local government and their role in interacting with uh, local government and how they can advocate for their interest. We heard about um, advocating for pineapple pizza in their cafeteria <laughs> and um, on some really fantastic ideas about restaurants being more inclusive to those with food allergies by um, listing ingredients so that uh, people with food allergies don't have to continuously ask uh, for the list of ingredients and some other really great ideas. So thank you um, to the Cub Scouts for welcoming us there. Also, we'll be joined by um, Councilman Pascal tomorrow morning, bright and early, at the Lake Washington School District Superintendent's Community Leaders Breakfast. Uh, we look forward to that. And there are lots of other things to report on, but I'm going to keep it at that for tonight. Thank, thank you, Madam you very Mayor. Thank you very much. Councilmember Curtis. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I was going to talk briefly about the two restoration projects that we uh, visited last week, but Suffice to say that removing plants and restoring shoreline is important and fun to visit. I also uh, popped into our Kirkland tree giveaway, which we had last week, which we gave away over 100 six-foot trees, native and non-natives. And thank you to the King Conservation District for the support for both the giveaway and the restoration at Juanita Creek. A legislative work group, I think part of the reason we're tired is we've had a very busy couple days meeting with our legislators. Uh, the good news is our agenda closely aligns with their priorities and what they're seeing on the horizon this, uh, in the session. Um, it's going to be a busy one. It's going to be heated and busy, and, and it's a blessing it's a long session because there's a lot of work to be done. So um, I apologize to council that I need to bring up the SCA legislative agenda so late in the evening, but if you will... Um, Indulge me with your patience and call up the email I sent to you. As you know from my pick notes that I um, 
uh, explained why Kirkland had decided to abstain from supporting the agenda. Um, I've had conversations with both the SCA, um, uh, with Mayor Bernie, who's the president of the SCA, the executive director, David Hoffman, called me today to talk about it. He also made a call to deputy mayor and the mayor today. Uh, they're very interested in bringing Kirkland on board. Uh, the executive, well, both conversations I had with Mayor Bernie and um, David Hoffman were, could we change the language to something that Kirkland uh, would find access, uh, accessible? No? Acceptable. <laughs> Thank you for that word. Um, so we have a couple ways to go. We can retain our, our position to continue to abstain and wait until we see the bills, or we can offer new language and see if the legislative, uh, the SCA legislative work group is willing to push that forward. Uh, the reason we need to talk about it tonight is they are meeting tomorrow. So um, I'm going to walk you through where we are. If you look at the email that I sent you, and I'm talking specifically about the promote public safety section, I'm going to start with the easy one first. The last bullet is clarify the circumstances under which vehicular pursuits are permissible. Uh, the legislative work group met with the chief uh, last week, and um, she actually would support this language. Um, although that the city of Kirkland does not do vehicular pursuits except in very extreme circumstances, um, she thinks it would be helpful to all um, law enforcement officers to clarify this a bit further. Uh, the first bullet, and I'm going to read the existing language, support additional investments to help cities with the costs created by the changes resulting from the Blake decision on how possession of controlled substances is handled by the criminal justice system. Um, that specifically is the intention is referring to um, there are municipal court costs that we incur when, um, and help me city manager if I misspeak here, would you? <laughs> when uh, when we are... Um, yeah, the... the Cases need to be basically filed as misdemeanors now. So they're shifting to the municipal court. And so should we see a large shift to take more court time, more police time, and, and shift the cost down to cities um, so, from the King County prosecutor? And right. And as you know, the AWC is also dealing with this and their decision. One of the reasons that I personally didn't um, support this language is that the way it's written, it proposes an outcome. And I think it's more important that SCA does not lobby, but instead raises issues. So my proposed language on this, and I'm sorry that this conversation with David Hoffman happened right before I left here, so I haven't had time to send this to you. But it's more focusing on recurring our costs. So the proposed language I have is support state investments to help mitigate municipal court impacts of how possession of controlled substance charges are handled. So it's more specific around recouping costs rather than discussing the Blake decision. Could you repeat it one more time? Sure. Support state investments to help mitigate municipal court impacts of how of possession of controlled substance charges. And I realized when I said that the second time, 
that's not exactly what I said. But what I suggest is I can provide them the feedback that this is the direction they would like to go. They will probably wordsmith it and send it back to us for approval. So if, I'm sorry, I'm only looking to my left. So if you are, are interested in that language, I can propose it to them. Um, I, think, I, think the, I think the message is the right message because that was exactly what Monica's concern was with putting the legislation in, in the first place, is that she was shifting the responsibility for the court cases to the municipal courts. So it recognizes that. And sure, I'd love some state mitigation for that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll never turn down state support for funding our court system. So yes. Well, thank you for this. Um, I actually think that's an easier, well, in my mind, this, I support that. I think that makes sense. Um, when we're done with this, I want to go back to the first one that you mentioned. Okay. The Sorry. Yeah. The, the, the clarifying. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, any more feedback on that? Okay. I will propose that language and then um, get back to you guys. Um, I, I, as I said last time, SCA will be voting on this in December, so there's some urgency that everybody's feeling that we move forward. Uh, Councilmember Falcone, can we... Let's do vehicular pursuits while you're... Yeah, sounds great. Thank you. So I think I think the word clarify is a pretty loaded word because that can mean a lot of different things. And we may support some bills that clarify and we may support some... We may not support other bills that clarify. So I am not supportive of the general language of clarify the circumstances, circumstances under which vehicular pursuits are permissible because I think it's just too vague. And I don't think that we... How about define? I have the same... I think it's the same thing because we don't know what those bills will look like. It could be something that could be something that we really support that they can, I, I don't want to get into the specifics because I don't want to presume what my fellow council members would support. And I think that's part of the problem here is that we don't know. There's just so much unknown. I'm not comfortable supporting something that's just so open and not clearly defined. And the question is whether that one bullet point is enough to abstain from voting or not. And I think I want to understand more about why they want to bring us along, like the impact of abstaining as well. Like is that, I'm a little bit surprised that that's something that's um, being so heavily discussed. <laughs> Do you have some insights into that based on your conversations? I think that, um, they're expecting, oops, yes. I think that they're expecting these issues to be divisive in the legislature, as am I, and they would like to, to present Divide a united that. front and that people will go, why isn't Kirkland? So it's to SEA's advantage if Kirkland is. But I, as I started out, I am perfectly comfortable going back and saying we, we chose to continue to abstain. It's just obviously I'm bringing it to the council because that's not my call to make. So um, I just don't know how we could be there without having the I'm just hung up on the fact that the chief seemed to support it. Toby. Well, if, if they want unanimity, the right suggestion is just to delete the point. 
Well, the right suggestion, if they would be to get rid of all three of them and just say. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think, and again, I'm not. I, I haven't been in the conversations. That what the chief would say is that having the ability for a high-level crime to pursue is important. That right now there's an outright ban on that. And so if there was a, a shooting or something and you didn't have probable cause but you had reasonable suspicion for a high-level crime, that was our previous policy. We only did pursuits if it was a serious crime. So I think maybe to Councilmember Falcone's point, if, if there's nothing in there that talks about clarifying a high-level crime standard at which mm. you could do pursuit, if you don't have some sort of def definition in there, then you are opening up to you could be clarifying that you could pursue any time, right? So um, I think that's a reasonable point to like talk through with the SCA to see if if setting a higher bar would be something to do. Would that work for you, then? Yeah, Deputy Mayor. So I think, uh, given what we're hearing from the chief and the city manager, I actually don't have an objection with the language that says to seek to clarify, but I would. Uh, suggest that we give feedback to uh, SCA that this council is going to be monitoring this and it's very possible that when we get to specifics that as a city Kirkland may or may not be may be supporting or opposing the bill once we get those details but I, I actually don't have a a um, objection to that bullet point as as worded I, I think we can talk through the feedback and the sense of uh, the council in every direction. Anyone else? I'll just reiterate what I said last meeting is that I think that we should support this, and I continue to. And and I and I'm not surprised by their reaction by some of the cities, uh, given the language here. I don't think I think we're reading too much into this language, to be honest. Um, so. I think I think I think I think there's flexibility here, and I think I think we should support our our fellow agencies. Thanks. Yeah, I'm. I I, I can live with clarify, but I think the discussion should be around high level. High level. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to do the second one. And thank you, Councilmember Pascal. Um, it currently reads, support clarification regarding the crime of possession of a controlled substance so individuals, law enforcement, and treatment providers can respond. Uh, personally, my objection was crime, uh, the word crime, because it, uh, it presupposes the conversation around recriminalization of drug possession. And as, again, our, our conversations with our legislators, that's not the, our legislators, that's not the direction that they want to go. So uh, uh, both Mayor Bernie and David were very receptive to that. Uh, the, I'm going to read to you the language that David texted me during our uh, meeting. Uh, clarify the legal status. Well, actually, I'm going to just look at my phone, <laughs> make sure I get this right. Clarify the legal status of the possession of a controlled substance so individuals, law enforcement, and treatment providers can respond appropriately. Comments? Uh, 
I can live with it. Can you repeat that? Mm -hmm. It's late. It's yeah, I know. And it's, it's late to have this conversation. I apologize. Clarify the legal status of the possession of a controlled substance so individuals, law enforcement, and treatment providers can respond appropriately. Councilmember Nixon. Well, so that, that puts us in a position like we were on the last point we were talking about where there could be bills that make it clear that it's completely allowed and there could be bills that impose the death penalty. And we don't want it to be, uh, you know, assume that we support whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, the fact is, even if we support a vaguely worded SCA legislative priority plank, we are not legally obligated or I would say even morally obligated to speak in the in support of the SCA position or to not support not speak against the SCA position and if in our own analysis we decide that we don't like a particular bill yeah. even if that bill matches the SCA or AWC or anybody else's position we can take our own position on it and that's basically what deputy mayor has said mm -hmm. and I'll remind everybody mm -hmm. that this will go on our support agenda and we do have the clarifying statement on our support agenda that we don't we don't blanket. yeah we don't blanketly endorse all um, support agendas so it does give us that that opportunity to lobby against the Amen. support agenda and will we be comfortable? I'm going to be the one that's going to be making these remarks at the next meeting, right? Because you're going to be out. So will we be comfortable with me saying something of, in that regard if we do get to language that we agree yes. upon supporting that I just clarify our position and how that may change, you know, based on the or specifics the of the bills? The bills. Yeah. yeah. We won't meet again until after that meeting. Will we? No, it's on the 14th. So we'll oh, it is. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So thank you for your indulgence. So what I'm hearing is that I will send them proposed language and um, we'll decide next steps based on the response from their legislative work group. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Super. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Black. Thanks, Madam Mayor. Um, hopefully, Councilmember Curtis, you can apply some of your significant drafting skills to the wording of some of those proposals. Yeah, those are pretty, those are pretty poorly worded. <laughs> so I'm hoping that when there is... Before I leave on vacation tomorrow. When there is compromise language proposed, it's better than what has been sent to you so far. Um, okay. <clears throat> I struggle not to wordsmith what I just heard. Okay. Um, God bless you for it. <laughs> uh, one quick thing, um, one quick comment, uh, not necessarily a report uh, per se, we um, approved something on our consent agenda today that I, um, leads me to a request I wanted to make of staff. Um, so we approved some updates to the, um, the athletic field uh, use policy um, that the park administers. Um, and one of those updates that we've incorporated in the last couple updates to that is a, a field allocation policy with uh, tiers, um, and I, I support the, the, the goal, I continue to support the goals of our tiered allocation system, which prioritizes community-based 
organizations and leagues, and it, it prioritizes uh, new entries uh, to, uh, you know, basically new leagues, new sports, uh, uh, a, a diversity. I, I continue to support that. But I would really love to get a report back from our Parks and Community Service Department, let's say after a year of this uh, field allocation policy, um, with some real detail as to who is, which leagues and organizations really are getting priority um, field allocation over other leagues and organizations. Um, what activities are they? What sports are they? And what kind of organizations are they really? Uh, one of the things that we do with our field allocation policy is that we um, sort of use nonprofit as a as a surrogate for community a community based league and organization. And I really want to examine that. I want to see which which leagues and organizations are 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 nonprofit um, and getting um, priority field allocation. Um, and I don't want to presuppose. I know whether a nonprofit is a good surrogate for a community-based organization, but I do want to see that, and so I'm hoping that staff can put that on our calendar for whenever is appropriate. I guess it would be maybe six months to 12 months from now to hear back how that's going. And I'm hoping I have the I see a lot of head nods, so great. Thanks. That's it. Sounds good. Uh, Councilmember Nixon. Nothing to add. Thank you. Uh, and all I'm going to mention is... We did have a very interesting uh, regional water quality sort of leadership meeting um, on Monday with uh, Council Member Dunn, where uh, I think it was Lloyd Warren from the district, a representative from Seattle, and myself, along with Conrad Lee, met with him again about the structure of, of governance over water uh, and the issues that we have with with maintaining some level of voice with regard to these giant decisions. It was a very open, very frank conversation. Uh, we're going to start next year out. Uh, you know, if I get selected for the committee, I'll be part of it. If I am not, then um, then somebody else will step in. But uh, we will start with a half-day retreat, having the division outline what they see as the big ticket items coming down the road for us and what they see as options for us so that we can really dive into uh, whether or not the, the cities and, you know, Seattle and the, and the districts uh, can adequately represent our ratepayers with regard to long term. The other discussion that we will have is about how we can take issues of infrastructure and expand um, from a lobbying perspective. It's going to take more than the state has. It's going to take more than cities have to move us where we need to be with infrastructure. So how we approach our federal delegation is going to be very important, and we need to do it in a unified fashion. And that is all. City Manager. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Just uh, one item of potential action. As you saw in the city manager report, there's a letter to Imagine Housing. So looking for a motion to authorize the mayor to sign that letter, unless council has any edits or questions. So moved. Second. Second. It's been moved by council member Curtis, seconded by a number of people. Uh, for, I guess for the record, uh, I'll give it to council member uh, Falcone. Um, all those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Uh, opposed? 
The motion carries. Thank you. Calendar update. And quick calendar updates. I'll be obviously trying to find a place to come back with the personal delivery devices and a comp plan update. Are there any other calendar requests from the council? City Manager. Uh, the only other thing is we talked about getting an update from Puget Sound Energy around electrical infrastructure and investments that they're making. Yeah, thank you. And so I actually asked uh, our Heather Kelly, our emergency manager, to reach out to their emergency manager to see if we can get a different way to contact somebody. So hopefully they'll have something to report soon. Can I have one more thing? Mm -hmm. I think it would be good since David Hoffman has been replaced at PSE now to meet the new David Hoffman. And I had a great discussion with him when we had the power outage because it was it hit downtown fairly specifically. So I do have a name and a and a, a number. I'm trying to think. Good. I, I will share send it. Send that to me. That'd be great. Yeah. And actually, we got, pretty, we got pretty quick response, at least downtown, because there were the there were major events scheduled that Saturday, and uh, people were panicking. Okay, that's all I have. Excellent. With that, I will declare this gigantic body of work done for the evening. Aaron, you may go home now. <laughs> and we are adjourned.